This goes out to Postman Gav. You'll love that. Right. <laughs> Here we go then. fucking gone i'm so sorry <laughs> you do realize that that's going to be the beginning of the show fuck it hello and welcome to tna <laughs> oh so much for us being intelligent ladies of film <laughs> now I was going to give my uh, my co-host a wonderful introduction, but she fucked it up. <laughs> can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> no, you can still have the introduction. Uh, let me introduce to you Amy Simmons, the infamous brain box and beautiful genius. She's got lovely hair beautiful skin and a very shapely figure but her brain is the size of a planet she's a bit deaf though <laughs> bit deaf bit deaf talks a lot talks a bit too much actually i mean she'd shut the oh, fuck up this one shut the fuck up strap yourself in <laughs> so <laughs> i've never really given amy a, a proper introduction before and i thought our listeners would be very interested to hear some of the work that you've done in the past. So I'm going to reel a few off here, Amy. So have you got your throne and your crown on? Could I am you? seated. Oh, very well. So Amy has done such essays and such commentaries as Children of Men, Nightbreed, The Quiet Earth, the Caretaker. Oh, my God. I bet that was heavy. The Caretaker. Spetters. Which always makes me laugh because I think of oranges. <laughs> Sunday Bloody Sunday. The Miracle Worker. The Passenger. And my own favourite Catholic wankathon. The <laughs> Song so of Bernadette. Oh. Thank you for that stunning intro. <laughs> Which one do you think was your favourite out of everything that you've done? Oh, the Sunday Bloody Sunday commentary, yeah. I think. I really enjoyed that. Um, mm. But it's it's very, very difficult to record along with a film and do it all from your end. It was, it was an absolute labour of love. But, mm. uh, yeah, I think as far as... Um, definitely commentaries are concerned, Sunday Bloody Sunday and... Uh, yeah, oh God, it's just yeah. And the passenger loved like writing about uh, Michael and Antonioni's The Passenger with um, Jack Nicholson, one of my favourite films. I don't think I've seen The Passenger. I've seen all the others. Yeah, but it's I haven't excellent. seen it. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's 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 Jack, Jack Nicholson at his absolute best, unrecognisable uh, when you see him in his you know you know, other stuff, which is almost is sort of like horror, comedy. This is just like pure uh, natural acting. And uh, he's a really quite a ghostly presence in the film. So that's recommended to is anyone. He, 
Is he an alcoholic in it? It's not the one where... He's an alcoholic in everything, isn't he? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I think actually maybe I have watched it. Now you meant... Yeah, maybe I have watched it. Anyway, anyway. Anyway, so again, regular listeners will know that Dave... Dave, who is the boss of us all, has been poorly. He had an operation two months ago. Poor Dave. Poor Dave. Poor Dave. He's getting better. He's not completely better, but he's getting there. So me being so (laughs) understanding and nice, I said, I know, going to be off for ages. Why don't we watch series of films like all the diehard films, all the... Blur, blur films, all the and is there any like a series of like the Godfather trilogy, you know that sort of thing? And Dave picked the films that he wanted to watch, and they were all the Planet of the Apes films. I slurred then. <laughs> That's how upset I am. <laughs> so, so it's okay because because then it was my turn, and I made Dave watch all the Twilight films. Now, I should just add that I am not a Twilight fan. I did it just to torture him. (laughs) And quite honestly, it's probably the best laugh I've ever had in my life. Watching those films, because they're all on uh, Netflix. So we You needed it after having to go through all those Planet of the Eight movies. I mean, I I, I really felt for you during that time. It was a rough ride, (laughs) Tina. The first one, Stone Cold Classic, really entertaining. It is. It's just a brilliant film. After that, though, oh, my bloody God. <laughs> uh, each each era, uh, as they, you know, the planet is, yeah, and the monkeys and the more monkeys and the masks get worse. Yeah, <laughs> it <you>. was, <laughs> yeah, 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 it was really bad. But what films have you been watching, darling? <laughs> Well, I know we usually do this. What's your favourite film of the last month? What's your worst? I've got, I've got a favourite. Yeah. I don't, I haven't really seen anything um, too terrible this month. But I'm going to talk about uh, just a little bit. I'm not going to give anything away. But my favourite film so far this month is uh, uh, Julia DeCorno's uh, Titan, which is hands down the most imaginative film I've yeah. seen this month. Yeah. So without giving much away. This director's highly anticipated and Palm Door winning effort mm. is a tr- is a truly harrowing experience if you're willing to ha- ha- let go behind <laughs> the wheel. Oh, um, a, I see what you did there. <laughs> it's a far it's definitely a far fetched plot, okay, that only a hardcore audience could love, but that's who DeCorno is like courting. Mm. So she's out to shake up several genres and shock her audiences, and it's certainly a ride worth taking if you can stomach it. And I shall say no more. So hey, ride. grab the wheel. See it out if you dare. It's fabulous. And you've seen it too, haven't you? I've seen it too, and it's my favourite film uh, I've seen since we last spoke. Um, Yeah. It's just, uh, again, Dave really liked it, but he... Don't I don't think he liked it as much as me. He prefers Raw, which is a film that I reviewed on the website a couple of weeks back, which is an amazing film. And that's it's amazing. It's a, and it again, it's a Marmite film, and I think I, I keep calling it Titan. I like the thought that it's called Titan, <laughs> but it Titan. is Titan. 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 Uh, it's the best film that I've seen since we've. Uh, but but I've also seen you know a shitload of. 
uh, review films as well. Um, yeah. One of them was The Guest. We had the 4K reissue of The Guest. Have right. you seen that? The, the oh, I can't think of his name. The man who used to be in uh, Downton Abbey is in it. And he just kills everybody. <laughs> It's just, have you ever seen The Guest, Amy? It's amazing. An amazing action film. Highly recommended off me. I haven't. I haven't. I need Check to sit that out. on the list. I think it might be on Amazon. It used to be. But again, you know, if you've got a 4K player, just buy the 4K version of it. It's worth it. It's a great film. Another film I saw that I absolutely loved, Nick Cage. Oh, I love him so much. He's incapable of making a bad film. Pig. Pig. It's an amazing film. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. What it's did you amazing. think? I loved it. I I loved Is it Wally's Wonderland as well? The last film that came out of Nick Cage is where he actually doesn't speak and just cleans a bit and beats people up. Such a weird, low-budget film. But Nick Cage, again, he's just the king, isn't he? He really uh, is the king. And, and he dumbs down a bit in this before, in this performance. It's not yeah. his usual, completely out-of-left-field, yeah. crazy self. He's yeah. just, he's just, it's an inward, you know, yeah. performance, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, it, there's so many stunning qualities to his uh <laughs> well there's just so much to him isn't there and i adored pig so yeah that's that's up there uh well i did notice good film the other day that the wicker man has just gone on netflix so when you hover over a film the remake it plays yeah, it plays oh, you a little snippet and it was the bit where he's going get off the bike ma'am get off the bike and then he gets his gun out and goes Get off the bike. And she gets off the bike. So that's something else to look forward to. So another film that I saw that I <laughs> surprisingly really loved because I really hated his last film is Denny Villeneuve's Dune. Now, I'm a big fan of Lynch's Dune, even though it's crap. <laughs> but this Dune is only part one. Oh, my God. It is so sumptuous. It's like sinking into velvet. And Timothée Chalamet is young enough to be my grandson, but I would still give him a good licking all over. You know, when I've been recommended this film by a few people, yeah, and it really it. has to go on my list, I might actually watch it this evening. I've been, it's, it's been so highly recommended to me. Well, uh we we are lucky, Amy and I, because we acquire films as if by magic through the ether. For we have not been to the cinema in a few years. Uh, and all I can say is I, I won't go to the cinema and won't be going until things change yeah. <laughs> a hell of a lot. But Dune is a film I really, really wish I could see in IMAX because it's obviously designed for it. And I can, you know, I know people that have been to see it and they've said that, you know, sitting in your living rooms, okay, it's not the same as sitting in a cinema and watching No, it. of course not. But um, yeah. I, 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 I don't really mind. I mean, I kind of, I, I like sitting in the living room watching watching a movie, but as, as you say, since the COVID thing, then mm. I'm, not, I'm not in any rush to go back to any cinema. No. No. Well, uh, another film that I saw that surprisingly I quite liked as well, Dave loved it, uh, was the new Bond film, Die Another Day. Is that what it's called? Die Another Day. I'm trying to sing, sing the theme tune to myself. Die Another Day. Die Another Day. Die. That's my Billie Eilish. 
yeah, it was uh, it was a great film. It had lots of nods to other Bonds and uh-huh. was almost like a full arc. And I'm sure 95% of people know the shocking ending of which I am not going to mention or give anything away. But I did, I, you know, we don't really watch trailers. So when we watched the film and this thing happened, I went, oh, right, okay, oh, fuck, oh. And then it said at the back, at the very end, Bond will be back. And I thought, oh, oh, I've given it away now. I'm like, shit. So, so my, my favourite film is Tatane. Worst film, though. What's Good a shit choice. film you've seen, Amy? No, I haven't seen any bad films. Um, I've, I've literally, um, I've seen a couple of great films, but I don't, I don't have a bad film to report. I really I don't at the moment because I haven't really been watching many films. <laughs> well, my uh, least favourite film is uh, one I had to review. And being an artist, I'm a massive Frida Kahlo fan. Yeah. There's a documentary out called Frida Viva La Vida. Oh, they should have called it Frida. Why fucking bother? Mm. It was absolutely shit. And um, oh, what's her name? Oh my god, her name has gone from my mem oh. oh, I can see her face now. Presents it. Who Don't direct know. who directed Suspiria? Dario Argento. What's his daughter yeah. called? Her. Asia. Asia Argento. But yeah, it's just like, oh, it was shit. Uh, another film that everybody seems to absolutely love, Malignant. I thought it was crap. It's, you know, oh, I saw when, that. So I thought it was useless. Oh, I hated it. And then, it's your fault I hate this film. Amy tells me to watch films. We, we share <laughs> films that we... So we watch... We, we really like Norwegian films. Dave talks about them all the time. We love Norwegian films. So Breaking Surface. Oh, I knew you were going to mention Breaking Surface. <laughs> Blame it all on me. It's all your fault. <laughs> I have never seen a film that is so hateful of dogs oh dear in my life you see i first saw that film without subtitles uh oh, all right so fucking, show off because i'm so fucking cultured <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i missed that scene completely about how she feeds the dog dog bucks because she doesn't want her mum to find out about her smoking i found that not only a a, a beyond peculiar idea for a storyline, but, but why would a dog want to eat a, do, a dog yeah. butt, a, a fag butt, yeah. dog butt, a fag butt in the first place? Plus, it's just sort of like, ew, what, what, yeah. what on earth were the writers thinking? Ooh. I loved the cinematography. I loved all that tension that was going on and underwater. Like I said, I don't want to give the film away, but yeah, I, I, I regret um, not... Um, yeah, really realising just how dodgy that bit was. But it also put feminism back 50 years by a woman who was trying to save her sister from drowning, couldn't find the button to open the boot on the car. That's the trunk in America. She couldn't open the boot. And I, I spent most of the film going, just look for the button! There's a button! But she... Be no. screaming at the screen, Tina. Screaming at the screen. Anyway... <laughs> Now, shall we crack on and talk about about the film? Let's. Are you excited? Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited, Tina. So, um, so tell yeah. me about Fatal Attraction, Amy. 
So let's go. Okay. I'm just going to give a little brief intro. Um, um, so in my personal opinion, Fatal Attraction remains without doubt one of my favourite films of the 80s for numerous reasons. So both endings are pretty terrible. They were two different endings. Yeah. The plot is inherently misogynist, but I can't help loving this troubling little thriller. So we've got plenty to talk about, Tina. We have. So without further ado, let's dive right in. So when it so as far as sex and its connection to violence goes. Yeah. So over the years, we've been treated to what Brian De Palma's obsession, Dress to Kill, Body Double. We've got uh, Lauren Caston's Body Heat. Then we've got Paul Schrader's uh, remake um, of Cat People, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yet none of these films, I think, have had such an impact on international audiences. So for Fatal Attraction, which was made in 1987. Uh, film director Adrian Nine committed, I think, so brazenly to the psychosis of sex <laughs> and murder and how the two sort of intertwine, not to mention the ridiculous soapy aspect of it all that he made it. <laughs> he did make it impossible to look away. So he knew which buttons to press and when to press them. Um, the director went on to make two more erotic dramas. We've got Indecent Proposal and Unfaithful, yeah. remember? Yeah. Yeah, Facial Attraction, which was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Actress, remains, in my opinion, the shiniest gem within Lion's body of work. So... Um, we've got uh, Douglas and Close, who are completely mesmerising as yeah. the central duo. Yeah. duo. And we've got him caught in this dire consequences of a reckless decision. And she exacting increasingly psychotic vengeance on the man that used her. So it's equal part tense, steamy, dramatic, insightful and liberally peppered with charm and humour. So how can we forget the rabbit in the pot? <laughs> and the ingenious line, bring the dog. I love animals. I'm a great cook. <laughs> Let me paw so, at you. Bring the dog. I'm a great cook. So how does the film still hold up? Uh, 34 years, can you believe it, after its release? The answer is, oh, yes, for the most part. Let's have a little listen to the trailer. A look that led to an evening. We were attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night. That's also obvious. A mistake he'd regret all his life. Now, where's your wife? Daddy! Honey, oh, God. And you're here with a strange girl being a naughty boy. I don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime. I've got to see you. This is going to stop. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on. She keeps calling the apartment. Hello? Every time Beth answers the phone, she hangs up. I'm scared, Jimmy. You play fair with me? Do you have an affair with her? I'll play fair with you. I don't want to lose my family. How could you do that? Now you're scared of me, aren't you? You're afraid. Gutless, heartless, spineless. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you. You understand? Daddy! I'm not going to be ignored. Alicia, where's Ellen? She's gone. Whatever resentment she's feeling, she's probably got it out of her system. What if she didn't get it out of her system? What then? Fatal Attraction. 
I guess you thought you'd get away with it. Well, you can't. My God, it sounds like a slasher film. <laughs> it's a great trailer, isn't it? It's an absolutely fantastic trailer. Great trailer. So I'm just going to read the synopsis of the film, and this has come off IMDb. Dan Gallagher, Michael Douglas, is a successful, happily married New York attorney living in Manhattan when he meets Alexandra Alex Forrest, who's played by Glenn Close, an editor for a publishing company through business, while his wife... The saintly Beth, Anne Archer, and daughter Ellen, Ellen Hamilton Latson, are out of town for the weekend. Dan has a passionate affair with Alex. So it's directed by Adrian Lyne, and as you just said, that he's a bit he's well known for his sex thrillers, really, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, just to quickly go back, it's actually, it's but the film's based on uh, James Dearden's short film. Uh, it's a 79 short film called Diversion, mm. where Dan, um, uh, the, lead, the lead guy, comes across in a much more sort of ambivalent light. Um, but, Faith, but Faith Attraction is by far the superior film, obviously owing to Adrian Lyons and screenwriter Dearden's treatment of Alex, at least until, you know, the final scenes of the film. Um, Have you Lyons, seen Diversion? Have you seen it? Or I saw clips, a few clips of yeah. it on YouTube last yeah. night, just a short film, not yeah. not the greatest. Yeah. So, you know, although Line Me Up might be, you know, associated with superficial trashy flicks that are far, you know, trickier to defend, but in Fatal Attraction, he comes close to brilliance, I think. Yeah. Even if only he's had another bash at that ending. Yeah, well, I, I actually was surprised to read that he directed Jacob's Ladder. That was a real shock for me because I I only knew him for Lolita as well, which is a remake of the original. And dare I say it, it's a long time since I've seen the Jeremy Irons version, but I quite yeah. liked it. I thought it was a bit more pervy than the Stanley Kubrick one. I mean, it's not your typical Adrian Lyne film, is it, Jacob's Ladder? No. And, I, and I didn't no. really sort of like think about that until a few weeks ago when yeah. you said it. I was just like, I couldn't believe it, yeah. Jacob's Ladder. You, you, you'd think it would be a much darker yeah. yeah. Darker, yeah. darker, more perverted director. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the film itself then, uh, and I'll hold the audience's hand through what happens, and as we go through, we'll talk about different bits of it. Okay. So the film opens, and I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about cinematography of the morning skyline, or I, I suppose, really, the cinematography bit comes in more with the meat district and the steam, doesn't it, than <laughs> the very beginning. So we see a family scene with a cute little short-haired girl, and apparently um, this little girl, he, Adrian Lyne, picked her because she's the same age as his own daughter, and he could right. see her in the child as well, so that's why she's she she's in there. And, and one thing I always thought about this little girl and this is going back to the time that I first watched the film when it was made all, all you know, 34 years ago. Yeah. Was how unusual it, it is to see a little girl in a film with very short hair. 
she's androgynous. She totally she's is. The isn't she? An, she's the yeah. androgynous little girl. Yeah, yeah which I yeah. find a really interesting yeah. statement. I think that was done purposefully. Yeah, because even now when you watch it, you go, you look at her and go, oh, she's got very short hair. Why yeah, she, yeah, especially for an American film, but. She's a stunning little actress in she's it, wonderful. isn't she? She's, she's absolutely... I mean, everything about the film. I mean, if I could just go back a little bit just to talk about Adrian Nine. I mean, I, I do believe that Fatal Attraction is his definitive statement. Um, certainly one of the greatest thrillers of the decade in terms of, you know, craft, as he takes us through a perfectly paced sort of slow build, and then that, that sort of escalates subliminally and seem, does completely seamlessly over two hours. I think the director's, you know, obsession with erotic thrillers, what erotic drama thrillers, you know, is really contagious. But I guess just like, you know, we've got Lolita, Indecent Proposal, Unfaithful, I think Fake Attraction is so gripping that everything else is completely forgotten for yeah, those two hours yeah. it completely drags you in i mean you've got no choice but to i i think fully immerse yourself in this wild mind game that uh never ends so and he like, sort of disappeared my... as well didn't he sort of like i don't know when he stopped making films but i don't think he's made anything in recent history it was like he had his his time was then and yeah. then he sort of frittered away then didn't he and didn't you know, come back. He's not. He's not like Ridley Ridley Scott, where he's still churning stuff out. No, it's a shame. Mm. It's a shame. Um, I'd have liked to have seen a lot more of him, but uh, yeah. Um, like I said, he's he's got a very Hitchcockian, well Hitchcockian. There, there, there's, he 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 does amazing things in this in this film, like sharpen pencils in Dan's office when Alex comes to visit. They're all everything's all threateningly, you know, present. Um, and this is a tactic, you know, that Hitchcock made amazing use of. Um, like the spectacular bathroom sequences in the films, and the, the, you know the way he just makes your throat tighten, mm. the way Hitchcock did. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's just one of my favourite directors, of, you know, of that era. Yeah. So we're back, back with the Gallagher's. Uh, the family are in their living room. It's morning. They're watching TV. Michael Douglas, we see him first, and he's in the shortest dressing gown I've ever seen in my life. You can, nearly, you can nearly see his knackers. It's that short. If you don't know what knackers are, then don't ask me. I just made that word up. <laughs> and apparently uh, that's the same apartment that Kim Bassinger lived in in nine and a half weeks. I did a not know that. Yeah. Adrian Lyne, he looked everywhere for the Gallagher's apartment, couldn't find it and just thought, oh, I'll, use, I'll use Kim's. So he did. <laughs> So it's a, a lot of people have already noticed that. Um, so we've got married couple Ben and Beth and Dan Gallagher, who are played by Michael Douglas and Anne Archer. And uh, they're just the epitome, the typical happy American family with a small daughter. Anything sinister? <laughs> just just normal? Any Any foreboding? At that point, nine years of a happy marriage, an adorable wife and an adoring daughter, this man, immaculate Manhattan apartment. I mean, something's wrong. I mean, it's definitely left (laughs) not shot attorney with all the conventional hallmarks of societal success and a nagging pair of blue balls. Let's face it. (laughs) Oh, 
And I love this opening scene because the film sort of cuts between Dan and his wife, you know, calling back and forth to one another in separate rooms while getting ready for the same party, Hmm. which signals from the get-go a lack of togetherness. Hmm. So the door's been left wide open. Yeah, yeah. So they're on their way to a party and it's for a samurai exercise manual. If <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if one of those actually exists. Uh, so we're at the party and it's it's in Mr. Chow's in New York. Have you ever been there? Because you used to live in New York. Never been to Mr. Chow's. Mr. Damn Chow. it. <laughs> there you go. That's where we'll go on holiday then, Mr. Chow's. So yes, it's... Please. It's a pretty upmarket party. All the women are in ball gowns. All the men are suited and booted. And the men are all gathered in a corner having a bit of a talk and looking at the Mm. women. And you don't really see what the women are doing. The women are being wives and just like in the corner or whatever. And then we get our first glimpse of Alex. The fabulous Who's played by Glenn. Close. I absolutely love this um, this scene because th- this is the launch the launch party. The Gallagher's all the Gallagher's come wearing black, signalling the coming of some kind of moral danger. So this is where we first meet Alex, and she's also in black, wearing this stunning dress, reflecting her role as the temptress. Yeah. So I mean, although Glenn Close, may, you know, might not look like the average Hollywood beauty, but she's consequently much more convincing as a real woman. I think with her, you know, yeah. ordinary abilities. Yeah. And I also love the fact that, especially in this scene, that the camera is, is a real sly accomplice in this film. Especially like in the early scenes, isolating Dan and Alex from the people around them, mm-hmm. which and the camera is just concentrating on their eyes. As yeah. you know, subliminal messages pass back and forth between them. The flirtation has begun. Yeah, immediately. As soon as you see Alex, uh, she's we glimpse her because uh, Dan and his friend Jimmy are talking yeah. to each other, and Jimmy notices her, and he goes "Hello," or words you know like "Oh, you're gorgeous," and she just stone cold stares at him. She do, she doesn't say a word, but she's saying with her eyes, "Well, you can fuck off." Yeah, and it's and, and it's, it's fantastic. Like, oh, she was she was undressing me with her eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's got on this incredible black, low cut, almost wet look dress, and she Beautiful just dress. she just looks really, really sexy. And I, her hair is curly and full. And a lot of people have, have, at the time, said that she had Medusa-like hair. And they're right. She does look like a Medusa figure. Yeah. Um, a portent of danger, really. There's about definitely it. that mythology going Absolutely. on in the film. Another yeah. one of its wonderful layers. And as you said to me before, she's got she's wearing these uh, incredible Medusa earrings a bit later yeah. on, isn't she? Yeah. So it, there's there's definitely the Medusa going on yeah. as an undercurrent. So she she sort of doesn't slaps down Jimmy with a stare. Yeah. And Dan goes to the bar to order some drinks and she's there. So he stands next to her and that's when the flirty flirty starts. And she is more flirty than him, I think. Um, she, she's more, I don't know, she's not, you couldn't exactly call her coy, but she, you can tell that she's interested in him. She fancies him. Yeah. And he's absolutely. just constantly looking where where Beth is. Where's my wife? Is she, is she watching me? Where is she? She can't see me talking to this gorgeous blonde, can she? 
Yeah, yeah. What did she say? Um, when they were at the bar together, no, she's definitely leading, you know, leading him on. And uh, he's just there, a sucker for it. He's, he's desperate for the attention. And who could blame not, him? That he's not, and who could blame him that he's not getting at home? Well, before we go any further in the film, I'm just going to talk a little bit about Glenn Close, give you a short biography of her. So this is from IMDb and several are great, the amazing IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> and other websites online. Uh, so Glenn, Glenn Close was born in March 1947 in Greenwich, Connecticut, to very rich parents. Her mother mm -hmm. was a socialite, Mary Hester, and her dad, William Close, was the doctor and personal physician to Belgian Congo dictator Mobutu Sisi Seko. I've never heard of him. He sounds like, you know, if he was a dictator, my God, that's dodgy as hell. She's also got an adopted African brother called Tambu, which she's, I've never seen her talk about him at all, but the parents adopted an African child while they were actually in the Congo. Wow. Uh, she grew up on a maternal grandfather's estate in Greenwich. So there you go. Loads Not of money. Not too shabby. Not too uh, shabby. So, um, you know, it's a bit Kennedy's, isn't it, really? Uh, <laughs> and said she wanted to act from an early age. When she was seven, it, this is where it gets interesting. When Close was seven, her parents joined the Moral Rearmament the MRA, a movement in which her family remained involved with for 15 years. And they're basically a cult. Have you, she looked, said, have you looked this up, this cult? I've never heard of them. I've never heard of them, but uh, I did look up and there's not a lot about them online. Not, they're very, yeah, you, there's not a lot to read about right. them. So they're very right. secretive. Uh, hmm. Apparently they were basically a cult. And in the very few brief interviews she's mentioned it in, she said that they dictated every part of her life. But in the 60s, she joined a singing group called Up With People. <laughs> you can imagine it. You're from Greenwich. You're loaded. I'm Mummy, Daddy, I'm joining a group called Up With People. And they probably said, but what about the cult? You haven't slept with the leader. <laughs> I wonder. I'm really wanting to know what, what you know what oh, went yeah. on there. I think it. Say, well, at least acting saved me. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, she said that up with people's stated mission was to write and sing songs which would give people a purpose and inspire them to live the way they were meant to live. Who Good knows? For her. <laughs> what? Say what? What do you mean, like Oasis? <laughs> when she was 22, she left the MRA saying, I've long forgiven my parents for any of this. They had their reasons for doing what they did. It had t a terrible effect on their kids, but that's the way it is. We all want to survive, right? And I think what actually saved me more than anything was my desire to become an actress. There so she go. became, she went off to college and her early career, there's nothing to write home about, uh, just a few TV parts in things like, you know, the streets of San Francisco, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But in 1980, she got a breakthrough part in The World According to Garp, which is probably one of my most favourite books ever. I love that right. book. Right. Have you ever seen the film, The World? It's Robin Never Williams. Never seen it. Never seen it. It's, uh, if you had the choice between the film and the book, read the book. Okay. <laughs> we'll do. It's, no it's her first film role. Uh, 
and she got an Academy Award nomination for it as well. Um, so that was the early 80s. Uh, mid 80s, she starred in that legal thriller, Jagged Edge, with Jeff Bridges. Again, a review on the website. I had to review it about yeah. eight weeks ago. It's okay, yeah. but it's a bit of a end. <laughs> Uh, the producer, Martin Ranshoff, was against her casting because she was too ugly for the part. She heard about this and she had Ranshoff taken off the set while she was filming her scenes. Now, we can talk at length about Glenn's looks, but so I'll just finish. I'll just finish her little bio first, because I think it's really important that we okay. mention the way that she looks as well. Uh, one of her most notable roles, remember, I didn't know she was, you know, in a pop group in the 60s. So it makes, yeah. it makes sense <laughs> that she was Norma Desmond in Andrew Lloyd Webber's, Webber's production of Sunset Boulevard. There's probably top 10 films for me, Sunset Boulevard. And Norma Desmond, my God, I painted it. That was 2016, it. wasn't it? Yeah, yes. the last time she played Norma Desmond was 2016. So uh, she won a I Tony... She won a third Tony Award for her role as Norma Desmond. Um, in 1996, a lot of the mums and dads here will know Glenn if they haven't seen her in anything else because she's Cruella de Vil. Cruella de Vil. Cruella de Vil, <laughs> which she is amazing in. It's such a good film and she's just makes the film. She's amazing in it. Uh, she joined the FX crime series, The Shield, Mm -hmm. uh, in which she played Monica Rawling. Uh, then she starred in her own television series, Damages. Now, I've seen The Shield, but I haven't, I didn't get as far as when Glenn was in it, but I have seen Damages. And it's one of those things that I just plomp on when I'm painting just to listen to. Yeah. She's fantastic in it. And Rose Byrne she's is amazing in it. Yeah, yeah. she's fantastic I, in it. I started to rewatch that the other day, and uh, everything she touches just turns to gold. Yeah, basically, yeah. she's yeah, a great she actress. Multi-layered, and uh, yes, and I'll be yeah. banging on about. Her yeah, she's also part of the Marvel universe now. A lot of you go, is yeah. she? Is she really? She plays the part of Nova Prime Rael in Guardians of the Galaxy, and you're all going, oh yeah. She's in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, she's in one of my favourite films of the last 10 years as well, uh, where she plays Dr. Caldwell in My May to M.R. Carey. Yeah, I know M.R. Carey, the novelist. He's very nice from <laughs> Liverpool. Uh, she plays the part of the Doctor in The Girl with All the Gifts. This ah. is a film that if you haven't seen, please seek it out and watch it. It's a zombie film. But it is, I loved it. It's yeah. an amazing film. It's really, really good and sort of under the radar as well. Don't miss it. It's great. Uh, so in 2016, after 23 years away from the part, she returned as Norma Desmond uh, for the English National Opera production of Sunset Boulevard. So she flits back into with I, uh -huh. I would love to go and see that. So she received a seventh Academy Award nomination, which has made her the most nominated actress without a win for The Wife, which Jonathan Price is in as well. So I've, I've seen that. I, I think it's on Netflix. Film. It's a great film. And she's just amazing in it, isn't she? Again, just amazing in it. Um, in 2020, Chloe... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to laugh now. Close starred in Netflix's film ab- adaptation of Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Book is pretty good. The film, though, oh, God, it's just so... Even Glenn, I think, is a bit hammy in this film. Sorry, she couldn't Glenn. save the film? She couldn't save no, it? No, she couldn't save the film. Oh! She couldn't save the film. Uh, she was nominated for an Academy Award for this part. Remember, it's in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yes, indeed. She also received a Razzie nomination and won neither. Uh, her personal life. She's been married three times, each time ending in divorce. So she's lo- on the lookout for a new boyfriend. Gav the postman, she's all yours. Gav Go on, Gav. Going, Yay! Go on, Gav. Uh, The New York Times remarked about her at the time, uh, uh, just, well, when she reprised her role as Norma Desmond, that there's no actor, dead or alive, as scary as a smiling Glenn Close. So I've I've also written favourite Glenn Close films. So (laughs) there's The World According to Garb, The Natural with Robert Redford, Hamlet... 101 i i really love mel gibson's hamlet it's so over the top but mm-hmm. she's Me a too. wonderful gertrude in it she's just so ooh. but for me glenn dangerous liaisons uh, thank you yes where she played what is it the marquis isabel de Matuil, who fanatically Matuil, isn't it who fanatically pursues a grudge against an ex-lover and plots the, tedu- the seduction of his innocent young fiance. She's wonderful. That chalked up and face. That, that's a film that's a mask of horror. Absolutely, yeah. It's just such a great film. And again, you know, because it's quite old, and it seems a bit artsy. I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen it. It's yeah. a fantastic film, starring John Malkovich. Yeah, I guarantee that you'd like it. So before I carry on with um with the film synopsis do you want to talk a bit about the way glenn looks because we've just mentioned you know that michael douglas is in the bar with her she's got this amazing dress on her hair is all puffy and curly Mm. and yet even when the film came out before sort of the undercurrent for it was glenn close she's a bit ugly isn't she personally i think she's absolutely stunningly beautiful in this film and perfect yeah i mean her performance just basically wowed audiences when mm. the film hit theaters but initially line because of the reasons you've just mentioned had been hesitant uh because his potential uh lead actress uh glenn had only portrayed nicely characters up to that point in her career yeah um but for line it came down to close's audition with her co-star douglas and according to him what sealed the deal um was basically how well douglas and close worked together uh he said when i saw her working with michael it was a revelation really line said of close's audition for fatal attraction just their chemistry when she came in and read she proved that she was right for the part you can see this audition as well it's on youtube it's also on the extras of the fatal attraction disc that came out last year and she is so compelling in it you know i can't imagine anyone else playing the part but her no 
I mean, I especially love how, you know, the early and middle passages of the movie are handled, you know, with such convincing realism as well. I mean, Dearden's dialogue sounds absolutely right, especially the way he allows Close's character to, you know, bait her hook with all these honeyed come-ons. I mean, from the very first scene, we see the first glimpse of, you know, the femme fatale of the erotic thriller. Yeah. where she sat in the bar with the yeah. cigarette and yeah. that dress. Yeah. I mean, Fatal Attraction is all about Glenn Close, isn't it? It is. I mean, is. I don't know if both writer and director could have ever managed to deliver such a tragic villain. I mean, Do she's just... Do you think just... it would have been different if if perhaps, I'm trying to think, if Kim Bassinger had played the part of Alex? What would the film have been like? I yeah, couldn't for possibly... looks wise. Looks wise. I think it would have been if they'd have got an equally great actress who could act in there, mm. but somebody who who was a real beauty. And Glenn Close, I think she's beautiful, but she is not a classic beauty like Kim Bassett. She has a masculinity about yeah. her. She has quite hard features, mm. but it's the way she brings herself across. I mean, she's a tragic villain. She's she's terrifying in every single shot. I don't think um, Bassinger could have done that. Um, no. Even when she doesn't do anything, you know, she just stares, whispers, cries, laughs. Mm. It's all fucking terrifying. I think her yeah. looks are part of the whole character as well. Yeah. The fact that she's not she's not quite beautiful, but she's very I don't even know if she's sexy. I I cuz I look at her and I think Ooh. Oh yeah, she's she's, got a, she's she it, she's one of those classic beauties where she's a terribly could be kept ugly one minute and yeah. then just absolutely yeah. stunning the next. Absolutely, yeah, I agree with you. I just think at the end of the day, it's it's about her performance and her ability, uh, you know, her uh, amazing ability to give a physical face to Mm. one woman's inner torment. Um, I mean, don't you think this is by far the most exposed Close has allowed herself to be in her movie roles? I mean, she's never had this kind of forcefulness, has she? Well, I'd say yes, but also a film that she made, I think she may have directed it or produced it it's one of her pet films is albert knobs have you ever seen that uh, where she she impersonates a man uh, and is a butler in a house and it's an odd little film and it's quite long <laughs> as well but that, I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah she she's um and i dave and i watched it this is a few years ago we watched it because i always want to watch stuff that she's in because she's great and it, I can't say that I really like the film, but her performance in it as this woman who's pretending to be a man, because she's like, well, she would be trans now. So, yes. And this is before yeah. all the trans stuff kicked off, you know, it's before all the woke stuff and the snowflake or whatever. The LGBTs, the yeah, T's, all the that T's. stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's, uh, yeah, she's very exposed in that, but in a totally different way, you know. Yeah. It's like, it's... Um, yeah, there's another film for you to watch there, Amy. Exactly. So let me return back to Fatal Attraction. So we, we've been in the bar, they've had a little bit of a flirt and it's time to go home. So Beth and Dan return home, back to Ellen. The babysitter's gone. He's, uh, he's had a few to drink and he's thinking, oh, I'm on for a, a bit of a shag tonight. But oh dear, family stuff gets in the way. The dog needs a walk. 
Love so he book. sort of thinks, oh, I'll take the dog for a walk, but oh, I'm going to be really, really quick. Comes back, can't wait to take his shoes off, oh, rushes to the bedroom. And there's an archer, Beth, his wife, lying in bed, the marital bed with the daughter, Ellen, fast asleep. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. So that's ruined that bit. So how are we going to get rid of the family then so Alex and Dan can get it on? I know. Let's send them off to see Grandma. <laughs> so so Beth has decided that this is sort of... You'd, I didn't really realise this watching the film until later on. But it's the way it's set up is we're taking the story forward by sub taking them out of the city into the country and this is how we're going to do it yeah so she's going to go off and look at a house but he doesn't really know so she can live by her mum and live in the country so there yeah. he packs them off and it's really cute the car's at the sidewalk they're all talking to each other she's talking to him the daughter's talking to her he's talking to the daughter it's all very normal family no. they're and tripping over things I love yeah. the naturalism of these shots. It's like an it's like an Altman movie, an yeah. early Altman film. It's all it, there's. Uh, it, it's like there's no script. It's like Ellen, give us your gum. Yeah. Get the you know the, the dog stays. Or I, I can't remember that wonderful shot of the street going down and then mm -hmm. the car taking off. It's just another. It, the, the, this is this is another brilliant bit of this you know so called erotic thriller because so much of it is just naturalism it's just yeah it's just normal could happen to anybody sort of yes. thing isn't it that's yeah. a scary thing about it i suppose for men <laughs> um so so at this point of watching the film i i can remember sitting there thinking i've never never really realized how goofy michael douglas looks in the he's really like oh duh. oh yeah get in the car see you then bye <laughs> He's really, I don't know, not your typical Michael Douglas in in the first half of this film. No. So now, now I'll just, I mean, yeah, go on. I mean, I think, I mean, do you want to get into Michael Douglas now or talk yeah. about his films? Yeah, talk I mean, I, 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 I loved Douglas's performance in, you know, Oliver Stone's Wall Street, David mm. Fincher's The Game, yeah. Stephen Soderbergh's Traffic. However, and I think you'll agree, I absolutely adored his utterly fearless portrayal of world-famous pianist Liberace Best in Soderbergh's 2013 Behind the Candelabra and the tempestuous six-year romance between Liberace and his young lover, Scott Fordston. Um, I think here, Douglas and Matt Damon are having an absolute blast playing off each other. And it really shows, and it's um, ultimately tender and sensationally acted. Don't forget Rob Lowe's face. Oh, <laughs> Rob Lowe was... He's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I had to rewind him so many times. He, 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 he just had that kind of character. You played the plastic surgeon. Yeah. Put him on the um, California diet. Yeah. With all the pills for the cocktails. <laughs> if you haven't seen behind the candelabra so folks you've really yeah. you've you, it's it's an absolute must well just, just before just before you carry on talking about michael douglas films i'll just yeah. talk a little bit about give you a little bio about michael douglas 
because sure. we had Glenn Coase. So I'll just talk a little bit about Michael Douglas. So Michael Kirk Douglas, of course, was born in 1944. And to me, he's the epitome of 80s film. The, the man of the 80s. Yes, even more than Sylvester Stallone. Shut up, Dave. No, God, please, no, no, no. <laughs> he's, won, <laughs> he's won two Oscars. And five Golden Globes. And as we probably already, I don't know, maybe a few people don't know that he's the eldest son of actor Kirk Douglas and Diana Dill. Now, Diana, again, didn't know this. I always thought his mum was an actress. Uh, but actually, she came from a rich diplomatic family from Britain, but based in Bermuda. Mm -hmm. So Douglas first achieved prominence for his performance in the streets of San Francisco. Now, I'm older than you, Amy, but I can remember the streets of San Francisco. And it used to be like Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, <laughs> the streets of San... And the streets of San Francisco was always a little notch above the others. The stories right. were a bit more intelligent and Carl Malden was in it as well. Right. Uh, so that ran from 1972 to 1976, and he had three consecutive Emmy Award nominations. But in 1975, Douglas broke into the movies because he was the producer of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I'm sure a lot That's of people right. don't know. Yeah. Uh, he got the rights off uh, for the Ken Casey novel from his dad who was originally going to, Kirk Douglas, was originally going to play the part that Jack Nicholson played. But after Michael having a word with him said, you're a bit old, Dad. <laughs> Maybe you should just pass it on to... And he did. And he got his first Oscar as a producer rather than an actor. He yeah. continued to produce and star in films like The China Syndrome, Romance in the Stone, The Star Chamber. Do you like Romance in the Stone? I do. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I do too. It's silly, is it? Kathleen, no. Oh. It is silly. I saw it as a kid. And, yeah. uh, you know, well, attitudes obviously changed. Yeah. yeah. I probably wouldn't love it as much as I did when I was a kid, but uh, I bet it you was would. a <laughs> you Yeah, you would. You would love it as much. <laughs> but then he made Fatal Attraction and the everyman right. he normally played, it just he just morphed into something more edgy. It's almost like just what I was talking about, the beginning of the film, he's really goofy. And then he yeah. he sort of morphs into something else from the halfway point and never went back to goofy again. The Fatal Attraction was the end of goofy Michael Douglas. It was, it was. I, I just want to say that I, I think Fatal Attraction was made during a period of, well, it certainly was made during a period of Michael Douglas's career, during which he made a series of films where he had sex with approximately, you know, anyone yeah. who drifted yeah. into his orbit. Both you know, in films and in real life. <laughs> yeah, no, Fatal Attraction, basic instinct, disclosure. I mean, truly no woman, woman could resist the erotic singularity that was Michael Douglas in the late 80s and early 90s. However, obviously, Fatal Attraction, you know, remains utterly unique among them. I mean, Michael Douglas trembling and crying like a little girl is also pretty entertaining. We just love to mess this guy up, don't we? And in James Dearden's story, he may be thoughtless and overconfident, but he's a fairly, you know, he's a fairly decent guy. So I, I think here Douglas trades on his goofiness, as you say, the sagging jowls and hollowing eyes to suggest <laughs> sort of moral shittiness. And his pretty good casting. I mean, I think 
um, Douglas is yeah far more interesting when he's playing weak characters than yeah. when he's playing the good guys, don't you think? Yeah. D- absolutely, yeah. He's that is what he was born to play. Totally. I mean, the yeah. film Sympathy goes out to Dan, even though he's the one who must suffer for his indiscretion. Oh. I mean, Dan, I mean, but he's not much of an exciting man, is he? He's settled, isn't yeah. he? He's a little complacent. But I think that kind of puts him right within Douglas's range. Yeah. I think he's so skillful with, re- you know, without really engaging you. Um, I think he's wrong for, you know, the swashbuckling parts is too average. He makes a really convincing every man and isn't afraid to show us, you know, a really slimy, smarmy side, which later develops into callous disregard. Oh, callous. Look at you with your big words. Well, should we get into a bit of Michael Douglas juice now? All the because there's, oh, I love the gossip. Let's so get on with Douglas's this. personal life. Uh, early 70s, Douglas lived with actress Brenda, I bet I can't pronounce this now, Brenda Vakarobut. Uh, but, then, but then, as he was living with Brenda, he met the 18-year-old, bear in mind Michael was 32, Deandra Luca, and oh. he married her. And their son Cameron was born very shortly afterwards. Uh, But in 1995, Deandra filed for divorce and was awarded $45 million. That's That's a hell of a dash. That's a hell of a lot as part of the divorce settlement. Um, Unfortunately, Cameron, uh, there's been, you can read all sorts about their son Cameron. Uh, despite his very privileged upbringing, he got into drugs very early on, which right. he actually blames his dad for, for introducing him to, you know, there's so many interviews online with Cameron where he's saying, oh, his dad made him go to the cupboard to get the pot out of the cupboard and the dealer came over. And, you know, so it was, you know, just a, a natural progression that Cameron would end up, you know, smoking yeah. pot and stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael... After years and years of trying to help him, Michael eventually cut his money off. He just got to a point where he thought, well, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. It's not working, so I'm not giving you any more money. Right. Uh, And Cameron, in desperation, did what a lot of drug addicts do and started holding people up, holding shops up with a gun. Uh, In 2010, he was arrested and sentenced to five years. The judge was lenient, obviously, because of who his dad was, but also, you know like you know it's like behave yourself get clean do five years come out uh but then he started dealing heroin in prison and the judge called him back and doubled his sentence good news is though cameron's out of prison now he's happy and healthy he's an actor and he's a dad himself as well so pictures of him now he sorted his life out and he seems quite close to his dad as well you know what films he's been in uh no Probably the same sort of films that. Um, <laughs> uh, let me think what they did. There's uh, Frank Stallone is always in films, Brother of Sly. Then there's yeah. what's the. Oh, what's Patrick Swayze's brother called? It's Don Swayze. He's always in films. Um, there's a couple of, you know, the brother of. So I think Cameron is probably in B movies. And his name is, you know, Douglas. So they go, oh, Michael, D- oh, Cameron Douglas? Is he like his brother or is, yeah. So 
shit films. <laughs> Sorry, Cameron. Uh, 56-year-old Michael <laughs> Douglas, married uh, Welsh Catherine, 31-year-old Catherine Zeta-Jones. In 2000, can you believe it was that long ago? That, that, do you remember those photos that came out of them and there was a big shock horror thing when they first started going out together and they were on a yacht and he was like licking, licking her belly and stuff and they were all going, oh, he's old enough to be your great-grandfather. She set like, up their meeting. You know that? She set up their meeting so she could get to sit next to him at some kind of award ceremony. She was completely out to have him for herself. Dirty bastard. Yeah, I know. Um, you would lucky do, really. man. She's an absolute stunner. I really, I really liked her in some of the stuff that she's done. Yeah. Some of the stuff. That some she's of the done. stuff she's done. Some of anyway. It. So, so the- Michael Douglas said to her, "I want to father your children, Catherine." And Catherine said, "Aye, all right then. You can go, come fuck me if you want. Like, see, and I'll get pregnant, but we gotta live in Port Albert afterwards. All right." And he went, "What? <laughs> what did you say? Are you?" Are you, like, from India or something? <laughs> they have two children. And, and in 2013, they split Very up for six months. Yeah. In 2013, they split up, but have since reconciled. <clears throat> in 1992, the same year Basic Instinct came out, Michael began a 30-day treatment for alcoholism and drug addiction. And in 2010, poor Michael announced he was suffering. I've got to say this with a straight face now, because every time I read about it, I, I start laughing. Sorry, you'll understand why in a minute. Douglas <laughs> announced he was suffering from stage four throat cancer. He later revealed that it wasn't his throat, but actually tongue cancer. And he was undergoing chemotherapy and radiation treatment. In 2013, Douglas told the Guardian newspaper in Britain that this type of cancer is caused by the human papilloma virus transmitted by cunnilingus. Uh, Yes, but later he said it was down to stress, alcohol abuse and years of heavy smoking, really saying that Catherine Zeta-Jones' fanny didn't give him cancer. Sorry. You must have told him to say that. Like, oh, oh, cheers, love. Cheers for. Um, She's like, How just... dare you, Michael? Tell the whole world that giving me a giving me a bit of a sucking off, like give your throat cancer, you dirty bastard. <laughs> oh, cheers, thanks for that. Yes, you're saying I've got a dirty vagina. <laughs> yes, darling, you have, Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah, this is the place to hear it, Catherine Zeta Jones, dirty fanny. Dear. <laughs> I know it's terribly rude, isn't it? Uh, he's still acting, even though he's like 104. Not really. He's also a part of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. And who does he play? Come on, Amy. Have a wild Dr. guess. Dr. Hank Pym. Oh, no, that's Ant-Man. Yeah. yeah. No, he does play oh, Dr. Hank Pym. Yeah. Ant-Man. Yeah. Now, how did you know? Did you pluck that out of the air? Amy, I you... still did. Yeah, just just out. Of you just air. knew it, did you? Did I know. I'm, I'm, I'm that clever. My brain's like a steel trap. <laughs> you daft bugger. Uh, yes. Uh, and he recently won an Emmy for the Kaminsky Method. Have you seen that? It's on Netflix. I haven't. I haven't. I want to so see it, good. but I haven't got round to it. 
it's very good. He he literally plays a version of, of himself sort of mixed in with, you know, like he's um, a drama teacher, but he's a bit like, you know, he's always trying it on with the students. And yeah, but it's so funny. Alan Arkin is in the first two series and he's hilarious in it. Uh, so, so we've already really talked about Behind the Candelabra and a little bit about falling down. So I, I would say my... I've got three favourite Michael Douglas films. Mm. The Wonder Boys, which is one of his films that he's, you know, a lot of people haven't seen. Uh, War of the Roses. I love Great. that film. Love it. Yeah. yeah. But I think, of course, Behind the Candelabra is number one for me. I'm where glad it's like, okay. It's the yeah. last great part he's done. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, yeah. I've seen his latest movies. They've they've not gone down too well. That was his last great yeah. part. Yeah. So Dave actually butted in for this bit because he could see me talking about it. Um, he said that Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas, you know, father and son, very yeah. very successful, both of them separately. Uh, and he said, can any of the listeners think of another? family who've been as successful as the Douglases when it comes mm. to acting, producing, directing. Mm. And I sort of sat and thought about father and sons and I can't really think of anybody that's been, you know, so successful. No. If you, you can think of anybody, please I mean, well, email us and let well, us know. Well, to name but a few family trees of Hollywood greatness, I guess, you know, we've got the Barrymore family, yeah. the Bridges family, not not forgetting Coppola, but that's mostly directing, isn't it? And then we've got the Curtis family, the Fonders, of course, you yeah. know, and let's not, and let's not, you know, forget the that the Estevez Sheen family. Mm. But I think that Kirk and Michael Douglas were pretty much the closest thing to yeah. uh, father son Hollywood royalty. Yeah. And also, is there a more famous Hollywood mother daughter pairing than the legendary Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli? So. Oh, you had to go and ruin it by bringing Liza Minnelli into it, didn't you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let's go back to uh, Kirk and Michael. No, I, I, think, I think they're pretty much the closest thing, don't you? No, actually, you've got a point there because I didn't, I didn't think of like the, you know, the Barry Moores. Uh, and of course, I think actually probably the Fonders yeah. are equally as big they're, as the They're Douglas's. pretty much Henry up there, and, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway... Back to the film. Yeah. <laughs> now, back to the back to the bit. So, so I, I've, I've actually in my notes that I'm looking at again, having talked about Michael Douglas, I've written to me, he's just not sexy in this movie at all. I don't think I find Michael Douglas sexy anyway. Do you? Um. He's not necessarily sexy, but he has just got the most fabulous chemistry mm. going on with Glenn. Um, yeah. I've never found him sexy. I've I've found <laughs> there's. I think I'm I'm so in awe of his acting. I think yeah. at the end of the day, that makes him sexy. Yeah. Um. And that and 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 like you say, that he he he's his best at playing these every. These everyman roles. Yeah. I mean, should we should we talk about that for, that meeting in Dan's office when yeah. Alex 
breezes in. I mean, this this is a great scene. It's the beginning of it all, uh, where we shift to Dan's workplace. He's conducting, uh, yes, this meeting with a group of men about an upcoming book by a woman who claims to have slept with a prominent senator. So after cracking, you know, boys' club jokes, the men question whether a woman... Uh, well, whether uh, uh, yeah, a woman can really be believed or trusted when it comes to sexual testimony. So this is Alex and Dan's second encounter, where their uh, immediate chemistry and, cam- you know, and camaraderie is palpable. And so it, in this scene, we're treated to this amazing, striking close-up of Alex, who breezes into the business meeting. And this is when she secretly uh, signals to Dan that he's got cream cheese above his lip. And then we cut to his accompanying close-up, completely turned on. And it's a moment... Well, interestingly, Adrian Lyne said it took them 18 takes to do that cream cheese. (laughs) Well, they got it right because it's a moment of pure potential sex, isn't it? And it it was Michael Douglas' idea for them to have that connection and that was the way to do it for her to tell him. Fantastic. That, that's that's the thing about movies. It's it's everyone's involved. You yeah. know? Yeah. It, it definitely looked like everyone was involved yeah. with that on off script, on the script, you know, making up lines, making up stuff as you go along mm. to keep it, you know, organic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I'm I'm waiting for you to carry on. I was I was no, quite no, enjoying no, listening no. to you. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about crazy career women, if I may. Well, yeah, so so we're in the office and it's pretty obvious that when Alex walks in, she she knows what she's about. She's confident. Yeah. She, she's just got a job with the publishing house. She's going to sit down and she's come there to discuss the legalities of them publishing this, this book. So yeah. she's, she's power-dressed, huge uh shoulder pads she looks yeah. gorgeous she's not scared of being sitting in a room full of men she sits down and she goes oh hello dan's here hi dan you've got a bit of you've got a bit of something white on your nose oh looks a bit like thick semen or is that just me it see you know you can read films in so many different ways but it's almost like oh you've got a little bit of something just by there oh just let me rub it off for you it was just the position of the cream yeah. on the upper lip. It it, it, yeah. it does read some sex. Yeah. So yeah. that was it was all done purposely. It wouldn't have been on his forehead, but it yeah. Yeah. You know, it had to be near a very erogenous zone. Well, at, at this point, she's walked in the room, and you don't get anything from Alex except she's gorgeous, she's confident, and she is a career woman. I, yeah. There's no crazy there, is there? Just yet. <laughs> Not quite. So, yeah, so we've got Alex, who's 38. She's, she's got this career and pretty much just about nothing else. So who is the filmmaker would like us to believe uh, missed out on her chance for happiness in the suburbs with husband and kids? Um, we aren't really given too much about uh, Alex's, Alex's background, just that her father died of a heart attack at 42, I think. Yeah. And she's had a nasty miscarriage that she believes has left her unable to have children. Um, whatever the history, though, her fling with Dan, as we will see, pushes her over the edge. So as um, I'm just going to do a quote here. Susan Foldy wrote about the movie in Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women. 
against American women. Fatal Attraction preached the incompatibility of career and personal happiness, where women's lives were framed as morality tales in which the good mother wins and the independent woman gets punished. Uh, the film provoked feminist outrage about its depiction, much to the um, bewilderment of studio executive Sherry Lansing, a woman who had to keep noting that she was a career woman herself yeah. and had been drawn to the story just out of sympathy for the mistreated and lonely Alex. Um, I think in many ways, perhaps what made the professional woman so threatening, the erotic thriller suggests, was that professional independence ultimately means sexual independence yeah uh, so by the time uh fatal attraction was released that possibility had become a reality producing a genre that i think totally combines professional and sexual independence a genre driven by a primal fear of the woman who has enough time leisure and independence to sexually objectify men and this is what I love. There's, it's no coincidence that Alex lives in the upcoming meatpacking district since she treats Dan as a piece of meat too. <laughs> so so to me, this particular scene as well, we, we get to see her. We're, we're in no doubt that she's a career woman and confident. She's got her own money. We don't know anything about her, though. We don't At this point, we don't know anything about Alex at all except that she's you know gorgeous and confident now to me I thought it was obvious that Alex fancies Dan you know the way she looks at him little tilt of the head as but I don't think Dan I don't think he finds her attractive I think he I just think he likes the attention and again going back to Adrian Lyne he suggested which, which I felt quite, um, I, f- I thought, well, that's a horrible thing to say. Uh, and this commentary that he did for this particular film, um, mm. I think it's only a couple of years old. He said, why would anybody want an, aff- an affair with someone like Glenn Close when they have gorgeous, and these were his words, when they have gorgeous Anne Archer at home? And I thought, hmm. This yeah. is a question that's been... A lot of men have said this. Mostly men, by the way, yeah. have said this yeah. to me. They've got this gorgeous d- d- domestic goddess. Yeah. They've got this gorgeous domestic goddess at home. Why go for... I mean, I just want to do a quick word about Beth here. Yeah. I mean, she's presented as this like model, modern wife. Mm. She's good-spirited. She's self-depreciating. You know, she's efficient. I mean, she, she's happy in her life. She's fulfilled. In other words, she's everything Alex would like to be, but isn't yet... Beth has become dull. Even her name Beth pales in comparison to like the you know, exoticism of a boy's, you know, a boy's yeah. name for a girl, Alex. She's bland and stale, merely the mother of Dan's child. And uh, so the boredom of the same woman, the sensible choice for marriage, if you will, eventually gets to Dan. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of excitement. Yeah. That's what he wants. A bit of excitement. So they... They get up, the meeting's over, they leave the office, it's raining. And to avoid the rain, Dan says to her, they're they're trying to hail a taxi and nobody's paying any attention. Dan looks over at her and I think he's starting to get a bit like, "Mm, I think she quite fancies me. Mm. Do you want to go for a drink? Uh, So then the next shot is they're in a bar stroke restaurant and... um, 
it's very manly. It's very brown and leather and wood panels. Yeah. And this bar, again, um, Adrian Lyne didn't actually say what it was, but he said that he picked it in downtown New York for the way that it looked. He wanted mm. it to look manly. Um, mm. And again, we see a you know goofy Michael Douglas. He tries to accost the waiter, oh, waiter, and the goof. Yeah, the waiter completely ignores him. Just yeah. little tickles of humour. Little tiny, where you go, oh, yeah, that's happened to me. Men will be watching, oh, yeah, yeah he's with this hot blonde. And, oh, I bet that would happen to me if I tried to get a waiter. Oh, I look a bit of a dick. But, oh, I'm so sweet, though, aren't I? And he is sweet and goofy. But he, it's like, but he plays his, his self-depreciating. That's yeah, why totally, That's yeah. why his, we don't see him as such a pig. Because it's like, oh, they all know me around here. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he's self-depreciating goofball. And yeah. that's the genius of the casting, I think. So we don't yeah. immediately think pig. pig. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know? you don't, and you don't, do you? Feel, oh, it's quite, you shouldn't be there, but they're not actually doing anything, are they? Exactly. And, and then the camera pans around to, yeah. pans around to um, uh, Alex, and she just looks full on Medusa. Her hair, considering yeah. it's been raining, you'd think her hair would be a bit flat and stuck to her head, but isn't. It's really puffed up and beautiful. She looks yes. stunning. And he you can see that her earrings are serpents, which is. To me, I, it was the first time I noticed it and I squeaked out, oh, oh, Medusa, she's got snake earrings. So she's, is she Eve? Is is Michael the big juicy apple she's about to take a chunk of? So Adrian Lyne said at this this point in the film where they're to-ing and fro-ing across the table talking to each other, he told Glenn Close to play footsie with Michael Douglas, but not tell him beforehand. And there, there is a part where you can see Michael Douglas is going, yeah, oh, he's not taking any notice of me. And then he sort of goes, oh, and you know, that's the bit where she's like slid no. her, her foot into his crotch. No. <laughs> but let's just have a little listen to our first audio clip. That's funny being a lawyer, you know, it's like... Being a doctor, everybody's telling you their innermost secrets. Oh, God. You have to be discreet. Oh, God, yeah. Are you? Am I what? Discreet. Yes, I'm discreet. Me too. So they go back to her house and for the first time they have sex and in the infamous scene they have a shag in her kitchen sink with the <laughs> taps running. So Adrian Lyne at this point said that um, just before he carries her to the bed he staggers across the kitchen floor with his trousers around his ankles carrying her, probably still inserted into her. And mm -hmm. he wanted to do that to relieve some of the tension of the sex in the sink. Now, there's yeah. a lot of water in this film. And this is really where we're introduced to a lot of water. 
Right, yeah. So basically the film is literally, oh Lord, oozing with fluids. Uh, we've got rain, we've got bloods, we've got tap water, acid, vomit. But the most prominent of these fluids is that sexually suggestive power of water. So as we've previously discussed after the business meeting, a downpour spurs Dan and Alex to their impromptu dinner and water, you know, noticeably accompanies the film's first sex scene. Awful sex scene, by the way. Um, Overeager, thirsty cuts of carnality. Totally unsexy. Ghastly, in fact. Uh, but this is where Alex reaches behind her to turn on the tap and splashes water on, on Dan's face and on her breast. Um, so the scene serves as an erotic release, <laughs> a sensation <laughs> indicated by the fact that the shark cop then cuts to the stove where an old-fashioned coffee pot percolates unmistakably connecting the tap water and this now boiling water with the sex that's happening off screen. Um, so basically the film uses water as a shorthand for desire. So, Amy, you're a woman of the world. Have you ever had a shag in a sink? No. Ever you? been... No, too far. Break it. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody... you imagine Dave trying to pick me up and plonk me in the... I'm going to shag you in the sink now, Tina. I'd be like, oh, no, you're all right. What about over the table? I can just about reach there. Sounds very uncomfortable. Oh, God. And would you reach behind you and cup some water and chuck it on a, the I man or woman of you? Some couples might have wanted to recreate that, actually. Oh. Like, let's, let's, sex up, let's sex up the message a bit. The message? The message? The, ma the massage. The marriage. <laughs> Darling, let's have sex. I'll stick like, the yeah. tax on. Dunk yeah. yourself in it. It'd put me off. Can you imagine, like, if you could get your ass in a sink and you were having a shag <laughs> and you inadvertently turned the tap and all that cold water went on your ass? Put you right off, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's all for the film, though, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, if you've seen Flashdance and Nine and a Half Weeks, you know, it's all the same Adrian Lyne doing his, doing his bad sex. Stuff. I wonder if he has it's sex titillating. like that. It was titillating for an 80s crowd. Yeah, that's it. Was it. it. Probably. But this was all, you know, <laughs> it was titillating for an 80s crowd. What can I say? It's generations apart now. So funny. It, funny. for me, now I, I find that particular sex scene gruesome. I, it makes me cringe. <laughs> it really does. I, I look at it and I think... Oh, it's not exactly don't look now, is it? It's a bit like, oh, And is there, there's no, like, Michael Douglas thrusting on the sink. It's just like, oh, it's, there's no movement in it except the water, which is, you know, so maybe he just sort of uh, gets it in there and just leaves it there. <laughs> I, still have to, I still have to say, I think their chemistry is fantastic. It might not be the best sex scene in the world, but it's, 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 there, there, there's definitely, there's, there's some first going on in there. And, uh, well, and I also love the way you know, the shops of bubbling kettles and the spinning fans are all used as part of the <laughs> euphemism. You know, the blood begins to pump in the film's veins. Ooh. It's all, you know, every film, every shot is now climactic in, in, yeah. ev on every yeah. level. So we're post-coitus now. And, yeah. uh, and Michael's lying in bed. He's a bit knackered. And Alex says, let's go dancing. 
And God knows what time it is. They've obviously been shagging for hours, you know, as you do in yep. a sink. Uh, so they go out into the meat district, you know, so we see them walking out of a flat. And the next thing we see is they're in some sort of Latin nightclub mm. where everybody's dancing. It's very frenzied. <laughs> we see Michael Douglas do his infamous dad dancing. Now, Daddy this, dancing. Oh, well, it's not as bad as the dancing he does in Basic Instinct, Basic Instinct which is... You can only compare it to Al Pacino's erotic <laughs> gay dancing in Cruising, where now he fist pumps. Right, leave, leave Al alone. That was the best erotic gay dancing I've ever seen. It is. We love <laughs> Al. We love him. Uh, they're very hot. They're very sweaty. The place is hot and sweaty. It's pumping. The bodies, are, there's so many bodies. It's hot. It's hot. Like the sex is hot. They go home. They go in. Uh, oh, yeah. Here we go. The best sex scene of all. Sex in the elevator. Now, I think this is is, is great because it's funny, isn't it? It's it, This is a better sex scene for me. Because even though it's not realistic, it's very grabby, it's passionate. He's grabbing yeah. her, he's lifting her leg up, he's, oh, it's all like, oh, I, I want you now. And then she starts to slide down his body. She's obviously giving him a blowjob. Mm -hmm. And as the lift goes up, which is a metal cage, remember, this is New York. Oh, yeah. Somebody walks past and all you see is Michael Douglas going, oh, shit, I hope he doesn't see me. She's very used to being able to stop lifts between floors, isn't she? I very wonder if good. she's done this before. Probably. Mm. Well, she's a she's a career woman, of course. She's Her in a metal cage. It's yeah. very, very BDSM sort of torture mm. garden nightclub going on about that scene. Very yeah. um, like, oh, what's she up to? It's just the way it's shot. Love the way it's shot. It is. It is. It's really good. But also, it is a bit like a wrestling match. <laughs> yes. where, where they're almost like a tag team but there's nobody else for them to tag in it <laughs> yeah. agreed there's there's big chemistry this is where the chemistry kicks off for me you know i you know is there chem yeah they're, they're definitely there there is all the way through the film but this yeah. this sex scene for me this is where the chemistry kicks in particularly when they get to alex's front door and michael is so knackered because obviously he's just orgasmed. He's he's knackered. He's been dancing and having sex all day and all night. And she yeah. opens the door, walks through, and he sort of is trying to reach out for her, and she's gone. But he's sort of like grabbing at her, and she's not there yeah. anymore. Yeah. That's where I go. Yeah, okay. He's now he's engaged with it. Now he's into it. And Absolutely. it's not just about some random woman paying attention and a crafty shag. It's more like, yeah, I want you as much as you want me. Yeah, agreed. So would you like to uh, talk about erotic thrillers? I'd love to. I mean, uh, basically, um, I think the erotic thriller was a product of, well, well, I we know the erotic thriller was a product of like relaxing censorship and the growth of the sort of soft core straight to video market. But Fatal Attraction um, was also, I think, foundational in the way it depicts sex. 
especially the way it establishes, you know, the erotic thriller as a kind of oral genre for completely consuming the female body in this brand new way. So paired with like the endless yucky backdrops, the eroticism of the erotic thriller lay in this compulsion to consume, consume at all costs, remember it's the 80s, rather than merely in explicit sexual content. So in other words, the erotic thriller was all about capital, property, space, and it sort of sexualized space in the same way as as the sort of neo-noir films that preceded it. So remember, we had Play Misty for Me, Dress to Kill, American Gigolo, The Postman Always Rings Twice. These were the beginning of the neo-noir sexed up films. So I, I think this is why Lynn's craft is most, you know, this is where Lynn's craft is most resident, uh, resonant from the very beginning. Every scene is blanketed in like this palette grey, brown and white. But anyway, just briefly going back to Alex, I mean, she's proving herself at this point much more than a match for Dan in terms of intensity. And the audience never dismisses her as a threat simply because she's female. I think her strength of character makes her, you know, really physically intimidating too. Do you think so? That do you find her physically intimidating in it? Very. At the beginning, the shoulder pads will help towards that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Those huge shoulder pads. Uh, Oh yes. Now I I know that this is an erotic thriller, but I I I don't sort of class it as as like a hardcore one to, because it's not th- this sounds really daft really knowing what happens later on in the film but it's mm. not as stabby as a film like basic instinct basic instinct if i no. get my words out it's i actually think it's better it's there's a bit more comedy and heart in in Fatal Attraction than there is in the later films like Basic Instinct. There's more, a bit more emotion, a bit more feeling in it. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. I mean, this is this is most definitely, well, this is why we're talking about it. It's just multi-layered and uh, they're, 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 there's, they're, there's, there's so much to it, you know, apart from those endings. But we'll, mm. we'll get, you know, we'll get to that later on. So Alex and Dan have banged each other's brains out. <laughs> and a good time has been had by all. And Dan leaves very early from Alex's flat and goes home. So as soon as he gets home, he's a bit, you know, he's going to have a shower. He gets the bed. It hasn't been slept in. So he jumps in the bed and ruffles it up and jumps out again. So Beth won't know that he hasn't spent the night at home. And then the phone rings and it's Beth. And she's very excited because she's found a lovely house for them to move to into the country. But she's going to stay an extra day just to make sure. And he's like, oh, darling, yes, yes, I'm a very good boy. Yes, you stay an extra day. Have a lovely time. Goodbye, goodbye. I've got to go to work. And as soon as he puts the phone down, his phone rings again. And remember, this is before mobile phones existed. Yes, yeah, this hasn't been made today with yeah. phones existed. Well, you've uh, got to remind people that you know there were there was no such thing as a mo- mobile phone then. 
No, you couldn't be sly. It was just like straight pull, straight to the office, straight to your secretary, yeah. or straight to your wife. Yeah. There was no slying around on your iPhone. <laughs> I've always said mobile phones are the gateway to adultery. I've always, right. I've always believed that, and it's true. You're right. So the phone rings, and it's Alex. And Dan looks really shocked. Like, how the fuck did you get this number? He doesn't say it. He's more like, oh, hiya. And she says, well, I woke up and you weren't here. I hate that. She wants to see him. And he makes excuses. He makes excuses and she goes on and on and on. And he ends up giving in and agrees to meet her. So the next scene, we see them in the park. Central and to park. me, that to me, this is even now, uh, just watching it last week, is really disturbing for mm. me. The probably the most disturbing bit of behaviour of hers mm. is the scene of them running. She, you know, because she loves dogs. Bring the dog. I'll cook you lunch. And he's like, <laughs> oh well, you know, the wife's not coming home. I might have an extra shag. Yeah, go on then. I'll do it. But you see them running in the park and she's running and almost hysterically clinging on to him. And ah, this is so great. Oh, my God. Look at me. <laughs> let's play. Let's play. It's totally unnatural behavior. Yeah. Um, she's hysterical almost with the joy of having this man back the next yeah. day. And I think this is the point where she's she believes that this isn't just a shag it's a relationship she's got it in her head already that they're into something she's in love with him basically and he isn't but yes i understand what you're saying about the uh her hyper uh, unnatural hyper over-the-top excitement it is distressing it mm -hmm. is worrying so you start to worry about what's going on in her head yeah yeah so this this is a point where mental illness is something I think that was largely ignored when mm. the film came out by, I'd say, a good 90% of people just went for the schlock, the horror, the yeah. terror of it, but didn't look at it from her point of view. Absolutely. I, I think this is one of the film's major flaws which you and I have discussed often in that the, you know, the audience never really gets close to understanding what drives Alex's actions. Um, I think the film itself is way more interested in blaming Alex, you know, and turning her madness into, you know, an inevitability of her singleness that, um, you know, than honestly exploring her contradictions. Um at the end of the day, this is a woman with deep-seated psychological problems. Mm. And I think in a more uh, liberal era, it's harder to buy, you know, the left-on-the-shelf fear as motivation. I, I mean, there's there's absolutely has to be, you know, something else from part, you know, going on with her from past relationships, childhood, or even, you know, any Freudian cliche you care to float that can explain her evil 
because as far as I'm concerned, career girl goes mad in the face of domestic bliss just doesn't give the film ample justification, does it? The fact that the audience never gets an insight deep into Alex's Alex's psyche uh, definitely increased the stigma around mental illness, which I thought was a real shame because if it had been released today, it would likely be shredded for exploiting mental illness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, This is the first point in the film, really, where alarm bells start to ring as far as Alex is concerned. Um, Because, Michael, they're they're having a great time. They're running about, throwing the ball for the dog. And Michael Douglas uh, runs after the ball, runs after the dog and collapses on the grass and doesn't move. And Alex looks over to him and goes, Dan, 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 and screams and runs over to him. And he continues to, Dan just lies there and pretends to be unconscious. And she's genuinely distressed. Then he goes, got you, got you. And she's really pissed off and tells him a little story about how when she was seven, her dad died of a massive heart attack in front of him. So Dan feels terrible. And then she says, ha, 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 got you. So then... (laughs) Super sick. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay, right. You got An OTT there, yeah. So then we go back to the flat and uh, she cooks lunch for him and says... What do you think I was running wiser than all the interesting guys you're always married. Well, maybe that's why you find them interesting, the fact you can't have them. Mm. But she this wants is, him, doesn't she? Uh, this is just one of my favourite scenes in the film. It, it flows so organically. Mm. So while they're drinking red wine and the pasta cooks in the bubbling saucepan, all sort of a bit of foreshadowing here for things to come, they discuss their shared love of Pacini's Madden Butterfly, don't yeah. they? The story of a woman um, who falls for a man that chooses her out of convenience and leaves her behind after she, after she becomes pregnant with his child. And then he drives her to kill herself from the pain of the abandonment and betrayal. Of course, you know, the parallels to the narrative of fatal attraction are, are, are not without noticing. But it's too soon for Dan to see it just yeah, yet. Yeah. So it's so sick. very quickly, as we've seen at the park, even though it was very crazy, they've established this easy intimacy. And in her head, she's already making plans for the future. Yeah. You know, after one night she's fallen in love. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he doesn't. No, no. She is literally a shag and he's gonna go back to his uh, to his wife yeah. and family. So have you yes. ever seen Madam Butterfly? Are you an opera fan? I have heard it on the radio once and I would absolutely adore to go and see it live. I know you've seen it a couple of times, haven't you? Yeah, I quite a bit like opera, which is a bit weird really considering I'm so working class. Um, Madame Butterfly is the only opera I ever took Wesley, my son, to see. And I thought he'd be kind of bored you know because Puccini it's all in Italian but luckily now when you go and see the opera they put a translation on a on a screen above the stage right, right. so the I saw the Welsh National Opera 
in Flanders. No, years ago. I mean, what is twenty years ago was the last time I saw Madame Butterfly. So it's, a, it's a, so beautiful and so tragic and sad. Love to see it. Right at the end, Cho Cho San cuts her own throat, and the way they portrayed it in the opera, the last opera I saw, was she had some sort of contraption around her throat. Right. Where about a million meters, I'm not exaggerating, of red satin came out of her throat over oh. the stage and into the front couple of rows of the audience was blown by. It's one of the most stunning things I've ever seen live. And Wes, Wes who was 10, maybe at the time, maybe a little bit older, transfixed. And then I, oh, I he know. wanted, yeah, he just... He was. I thought he. I thought. Oh, this is a bit heavy. He maybe he'll freak out a bit. Absolutely loved it. That red. That idea of that of red ribbon illustrating yeah. blood and how it's shot on a stage is so effective, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. I'd love to see it live myself. So hearing this music throughout the film from now on, now and then, Alex plays it. Gives me a feeling of, I think people who are familiar with Madame Butterfly know the story of the opera, the book of the opera. Yeah. You get that, oh, I think you, I think almost you're more sympathetic towards a character yeah. because you associate her with the story of the opera. If you're unfamiliar with the opera, that's one bit that's been taken away from you because you won't you won't get it. So there's there's another layer to it that yeah. you know you'd have to seek out if you didn't already know about it. Yeah, yeah. So yes, I mean there are you know like the serviceman in Madame Butterfly. Dan rejects the family he could have had with Alex, you know, in favour of his life with Beth and Ellen. Um, I mean, and there's clearly uh, that's clearly the di- you know a kind of, that kind of direction in which the movie was heading. And in terms of Alex's character, that's the only way it was ever going to end. But that's, but like I said, without without you know giving away too much because we're no way near to the end yet. You, you you kind of need to understand, as Tina said, the Madame Butterfly story and how it relates mm. to Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Well, at this point as well, you know they're having lunch together, and Alex look now she doesn't look like a femme fatale. She's sort of fluffy if anything. Her hair's fluffy. It's pinned up. She's got um, light-coloured clothes on. She looks like a housewife cooking lunch <laughs> for, her, for her boyfriend. For her boyfriend. And they're going to yeah, have a lovely totally time. Totally. Yeah. But then he says, you know, look, Alex, I like you. And, you know, maybe if I wasn't with somebody else, I'd be with you. But I am. And uh, he gets up. And she says, oh, don't justify yourself. It's pathetic. You'd be better to tell me to fuck off. I'd have more respect for you. And then he does. He tells her to fuck off. He says, all right, then fuck off. Yeah. And it's that's horrible, that part of the film. Um, it's, um, yeah. She, and she's begged him not to go. She's crying. She's hysterical. She's ripped his shirt. Please don't go. Please don't leave me. He tells her to fuck off. And she sort of it looks like she's resigned and she gets up and goes to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while she's there, she cuts her wrists. 
this is an amazing scene as he, you know, takes uh, Alex over to the sink. And, um, you know, th- this is when she, Dan forces her hands underwater as she's, you know, screaming in pain. Um, so, you know, water again, uh, while the running water previously illustrated and, you know, this incredible instance of sexual intrigue here, it's now starting to turn sinister, suddenly bearing the charge of, you know, washing away blood. Um I'm kind of amazed he stuck around all night and looked after her. That's yeah. the that's the good guy. That's the yeah. good guy. Yeah. Wouldn't He's not most so bad. men have gotten the fuck out of there at that point? Um th- th- this this brings us again back to how we are sucked in to his good guy qualities without dismissing the film as just purely misogynist trash because he is a nice guy. Yeah. He's he yeah. wants her to go to see the doctor. Yeah. He bandages her wrist. He stays all night with her. Mm. Most guys would have gotten the hell out of there. Yeah. Um, and I assume that he, he really did stay the night and look after her rather than yeah. stay the night and maybe try to have sex with her again. I think he, exactly. it doesn't <laughs> come across well, yeah. like that, does it? It's more like, oh, you know, you tried to kill yourself. But then, yeah. but then did he, he stay the night to make sure... Says, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't, I'm busy, I'm working, I'm doing something or other, but he's tending to um, Alex's wrist cuts. So, but it, but um, it, does that come from a kind place or is he just thinking, shit, shit, I better make sure she doesn't top herself because this is going to get me in the oh, shit if I don't. There's also that as well. Like, oh my God, because I'm going to be done with my fingerprints all over the apartment. And so that's, again, the cleverness of Lion's direction. It, it could go both ways. He does generally look caring, but it's always like he's also a bit of a sleazeball going, oh, better cover my tracks. Yeah. Better cover my tracks. So is Dan off the hook now? Because we're back at the Gallagher family home. They're all together. They're laughing. He's sitting at the table with his lovely little daughter playing a card game. Beth's cooking dinner. The kitchen's full of steam. Everything's right with the world. They then go the next day to the country to look at the amazing house in the country that they're going to buy, which is, I think it's quite near her mother's. And it's obviously a bit of a trek from the city where they live in an apartment. So they're going to be, you know, country lords from now on he Mm -hmm. looks at it he's not really into it but she wants it so much beth wants it so much he gives in and gives her the nod and Mm -hmm. yeah they're gonna buy the house so dan he's off the hook everything's great he goes to work monday morning hello to the secretary give me my post go in the office and who's this waiting for him by the door oh dear it's alex And she's in black again, in this incredible black leather padded coat, cinched at the waist. It's massive. She looks like a science fiction femme fatale now. She really does. She She really does. She looks hard. Mm -hmm. Don't argue with her. She's come (laughs) for something. She's going to fucking get it. She wants to apologise to him. Come to apologise. I'm so sorry I tried to commit suicide, Dan. (sighs) In a way, you know, to say sorry, here's some tickets for Madam Butterfly. Would you like to come with me? (laughs) Dan looks absolutely terrified 
and horrified. Yeah. Is she going to kick off? Yeah. Well, as we'll see later, Alex's apologies are short-lived. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as the three-day affair ends, she becomes, as you see, she becomes hysterical and goes from independent to deranged in a heartbeat. Yeah. So basically this transition uh, simply suggests that a woman simply can't have casual sex because even the most liberated women are emotionally needy at heart and every liberated woman the film would like to suggest <laughs> hides a hysteric fatal attraction, cautions us. So presenting Alex as a total psycho the moment she refuses to let Dan conduct the relationship entirely on his terms. Mm. Yep, I'm like that. That when I have casual sex with somebody, I just I just obviously like attack them within a span of a week uh, and yeah. ruin their lives, mm-hmm. and then I move on to the next person. Yeah, Not you. It's all it's all about the titillation. Really, it's all about it? the titter. Who cares about anything else except a bit of titillation? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so. We see Alex in her apartment. It's dark. Yeah. It's raining again. Different type of fluid this time. It really is oh, rain. Yeah. There's no sexy fluid. This is just tears even. Perhaps they're tears. She's sitting on her floor, turning her light on and off <clears throat> and on and off. And the, you can only really see her face when the light is on. So we're just getting brief flashes of the complete sadness and disappointment and she's so disheveled this stuff all over the floor it looks like she's had a bit of a fit and like knocked things over yeah and in the background is madam butterfly i I think this scene is absolutely heartbreaking i mean her you know her apparent confidence both in her career and in her sexual encounters exists only on the surface you know it's a mask that she wears to you know complete a performance you know that doesn't really capture who she is i don't think madness does you know madness doesn't capture the nuances here alex is just a study of desperation and loneliness isn't she and this whole yeah. scene is juxtaposed with this wild party well, something really, really, really interesting about this particular scene of, of Alex, I think is one of the most powerful scenes of the film. It that is. gives you complete sympathy towards her character. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's a woman thing, but I know when I see that, that scene, I think, oh, poor cow, you know, fuck, this is... It's desperate. Her face. It's horrible. That scene was last minute. Because the real scene was Alex actually at the Met Opera watching Madame Butterfly alone. And she looks over to the empty seat next to her, the seat where Dan should be sitting. But no, she's alone and watching the opera. Mm. And the budget wouldn't go as far as filming that. So it was cobbled together, literally like two days before they actually filmed it. And something else that's really interesting, that the test audiences, when they watched the film back in the day, when this was first released, Mm. this is before they changed the ending as well, Mm. that that Adrian Lyne has said that the audiences 
laughed at this scene. They thought it was really funny that she was sick. And I, as I listened to his commentary and looked at her face, I thought, wow, a cinema full of sick people. Yeah. (laughs) How could you laugh at that? At her complete and utter despair? Because that's what. It's been said in close up. Apparently, it looked funny. But as the camera pulled back to see her clicking this, the light on and off, it suddenly becomes a lot darker and a lot mm. more serious. Um, I, 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 maybe but, but I, I, how anyone can, I mean, I don't want to sound preachy, but yeah, I, I don't see anything funny in that scene whatsoever. Yeah. It's just a study, like I said, in just desperation and loneliness. So Alex starts to call Dan at the office now. And he's cross because she's constantly phoning him all the time. The secretary obviously knows that something weird is going on. She's turning up at the office and now she's phoning all the time. He says he can't talk to her anymore. And then he goes and tells the secretary to not put her phone calls through. And if she ever phones to say that he's out. So the next scene, we see Beth, Dan's wife, in her boudoir applying makeup with little Ellen and she's telling Ellen to leave mummy's makeup alone now it doesn't explain the time scale so I assume this is not just several days later but maybe a couple of weeks later Mm. with having another look at the Gallaghers so by now Dan is you know he's calm he thinks everything's okay she's gone away she stopped phoning you know, he's going to go to a party. They're getting ready for something anyway. She's putting her makeup on. Oh, it's a dinner party with their friends actually in their apartment. Yeah. Dan watches Beth put her makeup on. And now, obviously, he thinks, yeah, I'm safe now. I'm safe. It's all over with. And he he's sort of looking at Beth in a different light and thinking, oh, you don't cause me any trouble. And you're you're quite attractive. And you're the mother of my child. Oh, you're really beautiful, <laughs> which made me like, yeah, I thought, yeah, I bet you think she's beautiful as well. I bet you're so relieved. That one line to me is like, oh, God, I'm so relieved. Oh, I'm so relieved you don't know I shagged Alex. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> so they're, they're having a lovely she's jolly. So, she's so she's so wholesome, isn't she, Beth? Even when she's applying lipstick, you know, most of the family home scenes are infused in this like warm yellow yeah. light. Yeah, it's, everything's no. warm, isn't it? And close to the bosom with Beth. Exactly. She's the mother. Yeah. She's the innocent. It's so wholesome. Yeah, it's lovely. So they're having a yeah. having a dinner party and Adrian Lyne said that they were all genuinely pissed during this scene. That um to loosen them up, <laughs> he'd give them a couple he'd give Glenn and Michael a couple of drinks before they had to shag each other. But I then guess. during this, they were they were pissed. They were really pissed. <laughs> so it looks like everything's going okay for Dan. He's going to be made a partner from the looks of it. They're all laughing. And then the house phone rings. And Dan freezes and thinks, oh God, is it her? Then we go to the middle of the night. It's 2 a.m. Dan and Beth are in bed. They're fast asleep. The phone starts to ring. And of course, being American, they have the phone right next to the bed. I've never had a phone next to my bed. Can you imagine? What do you want? I'm asleep. <laughs> so their phones, 
Their phone is next, and he's half no, asleep. It's there's a phone next to the damn bed, isn't there? Yeah, there's a phone next to the bed. Uh, that all Americans have phones. It's like hotels, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. So he he's half asleep. He picks the phone up, and he goes, uh, "Hello," and then straight away Alex's voice. We don't hear what she says. We don't hear her voice. All we see is is Dan go, "Oh shit, it's her." And he sort of jumps up and he's like, oh, yeah, what? No, it's a bit late for you to phone me, isn't it, Richardson? She wants Dan, to leave. Dan, that mobile phone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, she wants to meet him. So he arranges to meet her the next day. So then the next day, we see them walking very fast through a, yes, you guessed it, rainy New York He's walking so fast, she can't keep up with him. And again, she's got this amazing outfit on. This big woolly cardigan, again, very cinched in at the waist. It's very big um, shoulder pads again. Her hair is is Medusa-esque. She looks amazing. She's got a briefcase. She's trotting to keep up with him. He's walking away from her and he's pissed off. And she's like, "Oh, oh, but I love you. And he says, I'm married. And she says, well, why were you with me then? And by now, they're actually on the underground in New York. And she turns to him. And originally, this shot was supposed to be the camera spinning around the two of them standing on the station, just going around mm. and around them. And Adrian Lyne did it like that. And then watched it and said he thought it was more powerful to concentrate on her face over his shoulder and then his face above her shoulder. And she she throws the bombshell at him, Amy. (laughs) What does she tell him, Amy? I'm pregnant. And then he says what all men say. How do you know it's mine? Thanks, blokes. Fuckers. There you go. There you go. Oh, we can talk about the pregnancy later. Then. <laughs> oh, Dan. And how it's just really just not spoken about. Yeah, yeah. Really? it isn't, is it? It is Dan has a complete, oh, my fucking my God. God moment. Oh, my God. She's ruined my life. He doesn't know what to do. He. Oh, my God. Panic power. Oh, hang on a minute. No, it's all right. It's okay, Alex. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. <gasps> Will you? Yes, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, I'll I'll pay for the abortion. And that's when she gets her claws out. That's She's right. horrified. She wants him to be a part of her life. She wants him to be a part of the baby's life. It ain't gonna happen. Straight away, family time with the Gallaghers again. And it's raining. They're in the flat. Dan obviously is very troubled. The lights are very subdued. But over in the corner, Ellen is reading with her mum, Beth. And the next time we see Dan, he's on his way to the meat district. He's going to go and have a word with Alex. Now, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the cinematography here, but this is where we get a steamy meat district vista. Yeah, complete. I mean, I think Adrian Minnitz is such an underrated uh, visualist. Um, 
especially for this film, he does really inventive, you know, inventive things with layers. And uh, um, you know, Howard Atherton did the lighting. It's sort of anemic, soft, unnerving. Mm. Um, as we've said before, um, throughout the film, Dan meets Alex just as he's on the cusp of moving to upstate New York, just as, the, the, you know, they're on the cusp of suburbanising. Um, to check, out, you know, and they're checking out a property that they're thinking of purchasing, and they also spend time with her parents who live on a similarly, you know, palatial piece of land. And this is the only time in the film where bright colours are used. Um, these are, you know, the country interludes, the green of the grass, the the, the blue of the river in particular. Um, I think it's clear too that the film's watchable vibe is heightened on just this ongoing basis by an emphasis on, you know, explicitly captivating images and sequences, um, while the tense, you know, third act, which we'll discuss later, you know, ensures that the whole thing ends on just this captivating note. Oh, sorry, I sneezed then. (laughs) (laughs) I am sorry about that. Oh, dear. So, yeah, I totally agree with you there. He he can make a really grotty area look just like some soft fantasy land can't he it's almost um oh this one particular scene that when you first see it look it looks like something ridley scott could have made as well Uh, but not not in a blade runner way but but in a you know that sort of deep colors misty just beautiful um so michael watches Alex leave for work and he breaks into her apartment. Why? We don't know, really. He's just looking for evidence for her, uh, you know, to get something on her, to know. Because he doesn't know anything about her except that she said her dad died when she was seven. In front, And then she said, ha-ha, I got you. And yeah. that she also told him when she tells him she's pregnant that she doesn't think she can have a baby because she had a mm-hmm. really bad miscarriage the year before. She, uh, As far as us, the viewer, we don't know about who, who the father of that other baby was, what no past clue. relationships she's had. We don't know anything about her. So he breaks into her apartment, has a good rummage around, finds a scrapbook with photos and he's looking through the photos. Then he finds a press cutting saying about this eminent scientist who died in front of his daughter when she would have been seven. And he looks at it and thinks, she's mad. And this is this is the first time he he goes, oh, my God, I'm dealing with a mad woman here. The look on his face is like, yes mad she's mad and then he does something unexpected he tells jimmy his workmate that he's got a problem he tells jimmy in in sort of a library in a law office That's it, the quietness of the library yeah it's the really privacy qu- of the library yeah it's qu- really quiet but it, but also looks very manly Again. leather yeah. Manly backdrop, yeah, very manly. He said, uh, he says, she, well, she keeps calling the apartment, and every time Beth answers the phone, she hangs up. And I'm scared, I could lose my family here. I'm really scared. And Jimmy just sort of doesn't come up with an answer. He, he says, oh, report to the police. So next, we see Alex on her bed now. Her her once very sparse, minimalist 
um, apartment. Looks like it's covered in crack. It's covered in uh, wrappers. Her bed is covered in every type of horrible, shitty sort of Twinkie food you can imagine. And she's <laughs> stuffing her face and ringing Dan with a pencil, with a push button phone, really mm -hmm. violently. Tap, 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 tap. Burp. Tap, tap, tap. And in the end, she phones the operator and says, I can't get through to this number. It's really important. You've got to put me through. It's life or death. Uh, and the man on the other end says, I can't put you through. It's disconnected. And she says, oh, fuck you. And he replies. My place or yours? Yeah. <laughs> my place or yours? you bring that up because that's yeah. one of my favourite lines of the movie that's often missed. Yes, because he says it quite quietly. You can't really hear it. Yeah. Can you? But he does say, my place or yours, yeah. I'm so. really glad you said that. It's one of those sneaky little lines that just makes <laughs> you know, what it is. Just excellent. Sorry, do carry No, that's okay. So Dan is, a, Dan is distracted. He's worried. She's fucking his life up. It's it's only a matter of time before it all comes crashing down. He he's, doesn't know what to do. I think he could have coped if she hadn't have told him she was pregnant. She also gives him a card of her, of her doctor so he can confirm that she is. And he does. He does phone up. He tells Jimmy, I phoned a doctor. She's no. pregnant. She is pregnant. It's confirmed. We, it's confirmed. we know it's confirmed. Yeah. yeah, she's pregnant with the phantom yep. baby. Yep. So he's very distracted and he's, you know, he's finished work. He goes home, he opens the front door and, oh, my God, that can't be her voice. That can't be Alex in his house. She freezes. Yeah, there she is sitting there having a cup of tea with Beth. Yes, in conversation under the guise of being a potential buyer, yes. no less. Yeah. Uh, she loves the flat. She's going to... When are you moving? You're moving to the country. Oh, whereabouts? Oh, really? Oh, do you really like the flat? Here, we've changed our number, says Beth. Let me give you my new number. And as she goes off to write the new number down, Alex looks at Dan and Dan looks at Alex. And she is so happy that she's standing in his flat. And she gives him a little smug smirk and like it's the smug smirk of the yeah. century really wasn't it, it? is yeah. ha ha not only have i met your wife not only have i been in your house but your wife's over there she can't see us looking at each other she's writing your new phone number down for me and fuck you dan mm -hmm. dan's face is a picture a picture, <laughs> <laughs> a picture. The, the genius of Michael Douglas acting like everything is fine, but inside he's dying. Yeah, he's yeah. brilliant. She's gloating. Next we see Dan slipping into the apartment building of Alex. He waits for somebody to leave and just wedges the door open. He runs up to a flat, knocks on the door. Alex opens the door and she's standing there in the most beautiful nightdress she knows she's expecting him he, she knows he's going to come yeah. he's rung her he says he needs to talk to her she's she acting like it's a date <laughs> like total day right. 
total date. She looks she looks absolutely beautiful. She offers him a drink, which can you do the can you do the voice, Amy? That she I've got uses. Whiskey, I've got wine, I've got anything you like, what do you want? Yeah, something like that. But she thinks it's a date. You know, she, she, she's deluded enough to just go, you know, I was expecting you. Great. Yeah, yeah come on and then. He loses he, his shit. He loses it and they have a massive row. And then she says probably the best line of the film. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my appointment? Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Hmm. It's a beauty of a line. Yeah. And that is the line, I think, that struck the heart of the audience back when this film came out. And yeah. the consensus was, how dare she say that to him how dare she even suggest that it's not okay for him to ignore her he's mm. had his fun she had her fun it's all over he's married get over it alex mm. if you um, want that yeah yeah so after that row they moved to the country and the phone calls start immediately to the new house the phone, I thought, in this this section of the film is almost like a third character, like a ghost behind yeah. Dan. He's, he's scared of it. It yeah. rings and he answers it and he nearly shits himself because he, he's got to answer it because Beth is there. And he's like, oh, uh, hello. Oh, oh, it's Sybil. <laughs> it's Sybil. <laughs> he tells the movie man, it's Sybil. <laughs> Like, hooray, it's not Alex. It's not that woman I fucked. It's not that woman I got pregnant. He goes, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. Thank God. It seems like the phone is always ringing. So, but, but we're back on the surface to, <coughs> oh, excuse me, happy family Gallagher again. And Ellen, the lovely little girl, has finally been bought a rabbit. <laughs> this bloody rabbit this kid's been going on about this rabbit all the way through the film and finally they buy her a rabbit and it's a little pink bunny lovely bunny bunny rabbit with pink eyes so bunny boiler comes from this film and you'll know why soon <laughs> i was i was quite surprised that all the horror started so far into the film it's one of the strengths of this film is that we yes. we get some really good um, background and establishment of character yeah. before the That's horror awesome. horror starts. Yeah. So I yeah. Just, I like just... I said, that that's almost like Robert Altman's style of just natural families getting on with their thing, a little affair happening on the side, and then it just starts to. You know, it's just as I said, it starts something starts to pump in the film's veins, and there's just no stopping it. Yeah. You can't breathe, you just can't breathe as soon as it all starts getting heavy. So, to prepare for this role, Glenn Close, there are probably a hundred interviews with Glenn Close on YouTube and you know, newspaper, uh, online interviews with Glenn Close about this role because it is her role of a lifetime isn't it and something yes. that, that people will always come back to and always ask her questions about yeah so apparently during 
the making of the film, she, she's quoted as, she said, that she consulted several psychologists hoping to understand Alex's psyche and motivations. She was very uncomfortable with the bunny boiling scene, which she mm-hmm. thought was too extreme. But she was assured on consulting the psychologist that such an action was entirely possible and that Alex's behaviour corresponded to somebody who'd experienced incestual sexual abuse as a child. So there's, there's another layer that, you know, I suppose it goes down to almost method acting in a way where you give your character that much of a background. But you yeah. haven't haven't quite got to the bunny boiling part. Uh, before that happens, she throws acid on his car uh, and also leaves a tape on his seat to listen to. And Adrian Lyne said that this tape is is actually based on a real occurrence of one of his mates had a stalky girlfriend and she made a tape for him ah. and Lyne took the content of this tape and more or less verbatim got Glenn close to speak the words. So Michael's going back and to to work, back and to to work. And of course, Glenn follows him one day. Uh, she just follows him. So now she knows not only his phone number, but she knows where he, li- he lives. And as he's driving home, he plays the tape. And oh. it is... It's pretty foul. So I mean, it, there's a, it's almost like a mini speech, but she calls him, you know, he's not a man. Is he gay? He won't face up to his responsibilities. She hates yeah. him. You deserve everything you get. Yeah. Um, and then he goes into his new house and plays Happy Families mm-hmm. with, with his family uh, and then goes upstairs to listen to the end of the tape, which is even more horrific, the stuff that she says. And he's so disturbed by what she said. He he goes to he goes to the police and says, "Look, I've had an affair with a woman. She won't leave me alone. She's stalking me." And the police say, "What do you expect us to do about it? You've got no proof. She hasn't killed you. You know, you've just got to catch her in the act. Caught in the act, something yeah. like that." And he says, well, like, "What act? Catch her doing what?" what? He says, exactly. and they're very like, "Well, the the act." So that's all very, you know, well, what are you talking about? Fortunately, no mobile phones there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no mobile. Yeah. Can't record with your phone what's happening. So they're going to go off to grandma's house. And Ellen, who loves her little bunny that her daddy has bought her and has a hutch outside in the garden, runs and feeds the bunny just before she goes to grandma's. They all pile in the car. And afterwards, they go, oh, one important bit I did leave out is when when Alex follows them home so she knows where they live now. That's it, yeah. She creeps up to the house and sees their lovely family scene. And she... And and this is disturbing as well. This this is something I think a lot of people haven't picked up on. Because I think they think, oh, she's pregnant and you're sick. You throw up in the first trimester i don't think she was throwing up because she was pregnant she was throwing up at the sight of this happy family it's too traumatic too yeah. traumatic for her to deal with yeah totally in instant shock and revulsion um looking through this window this cinematic window mm. of this happy family with the roaring fire 
and the rabbit and it and that that was the uh tipping point yeah total tipping point for her uh because while the gallagher's are at grandma's house they have a visitor i don't know if you'd like to talk about this most infamous scene of the film and where bunny boiler comes from all oh, right uh so here we are <laughs> we finally got here the the film's most infamous scene brilliantly cut um i should add by the film's editors uh, michael can and peter e berger um here the camera jumps between beth's you know soft slow approach to a mysterious boiling pot and a dizzy fast tracking shot of ellen's feet sprinting in the backyard to her pet rabbit's cage mm. So while Beth's pace remains kind of stagnant, the disorientation of the rushing motion and uncomfortable framing of Ellen's chase intensifies with the addition of rapid shots of this bubbling pot at really askew angles. And by the time she lifts the handle, the cut brilliantly speeds up to this breakneck clip between horrified mother, clueless father and shrieking daughter. I mean, Ellen's going crazy mm. and the family unit completely disrupted by a tense mania that can only mean Alex is afoot. So basically this scene involving Ellen's pet rabbit has, yeah, as you said, Tina, um, has has over actually overtaken the film's reputation. Yeah. Such is the case with the term bunny boiler used to describe, you know, Alex's femme fatale. It was added to the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, (laughs) would you believe, and remains a shorthand, you know, for a particular kind of jealousy or obsessive or, you know, vengeful behaviour. You know, it's a dubious honour, I guess. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I suppose uh, it is, really. However, I think think it's such a shame because it makes uh, other more subtle techniques... um, it, it masks other more subtle techniques that appear throughout the film, especially you know around the rabbit. I mean, do you, do you uh, if you you know how the rabbit's fate for for instance is you know foreshadowed earlier on in the film um, mm. when Dan takes the rabbit home for the first time, we see him taking the lift back to his car. The cage is by his feet. And as the lift ascends, there's this wonderful red light on the wall that casts this bloody glow over Dan <laughs> and the and the bunny in the cage. So this wonderful yeah. foreshadowing of blood yeah. coming up before. And they used a real bunny rabbit, Tina. They used a real Did rabbit. They? It was dead anyway. It was dead anyway. It's That's okay. Horrible. Just to add See, to the realism. If that isn't a vegan alert, I don't know what is. <laughs> Dave will probably put a vegan alert in there. It is it is horrific though because you I wonder if it would be different because she opens the lid and you actually see the bloody rabbit in the pot and yeah. and it's almost like you're not expect it even now I know it's there but I still go oh my god that's horrible it's just a brilliantly edited scene it's just an absolute standout absolute standout scene for me well this is where the shit hits the fan for dan oh, at yeah. last um beth asks dan if he's called the police and he's looking out the door they've got a door in their living room that goes outside which is yeah that's what rich people have yeah, and know, guess what it's raining it's absolutely pissing down with rain and dan without looking at her says i i know who did this and uh, she looks at him. Beth looks at him like, "What? What? Yeah, it's 
I know who did this. It's the blonde. Um, and he confesses everything to her. She guesses you've had an affair. He says, yes, it was one night. It didn't mean anything. Mm. And she said, but, but why all this? Why all this? And then he gives her the real bombshell of she's pregnant. Now, I think you can forgive if you, well, you can forgive people having affairs. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But I think that added addition of knowing the person you've had the affair with is pregnant. I don't know how you would cope with that. I mean, exactly. I know people that that's happened to and they've... Just so, exactly. Just so we know at this stage, Beth and Dan are completely and utterly aware that she is pregnant. Yeah. Okay. She she is pregnant, yeah. Alex yeah. is pregnant. Beth is hysterical. She tells him to leave, to get out. And this this act this scene actually is is I find this quite disturbing because the little girl, Ellen, their daughter, stands in the doorway and she is genuinely crying and looks and it, and you look at it and think that's not acting. She's really crying. And yeah. and it's and it's horrible. But um, what happened was Adrian Lyne said the way he got her to cry was he stood at one side of the room and Michael Douglas stood at the other, and Michael Douglas told her he was going to take her little unicorn off her, and she was never allowed to have it again. And she yeah. look she's looking at Michael Douglas and going, "I'm a, what? You want to take my unicorn?" And she's really holding on to her little toy. And Michael Douglas says, I'm coming now. I want that. Give me that toy. Give it to me. Give it to me now. Yeah. And then yeah. she goes, oh, and she's hysterical. Then Adrian Lyon goes over to her and says, oh, he's only joking here. You, of course you can keep your... Big... Michael Douglas came over and gave her a big hug afterwards and just went, I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding. <sighs> but it's true, that scene it's is just... Horrible. Heart-melting. Horrible, horrible. Poor little thing. So here's a bit of a twist now, again, that's a surprising element to the film as well. You see Dan phone Alex. Yeah. And he says, right, it's over. It's over, Alex. It's over. Beth knows everything. I've told her. Now, I originally, you look at this and I'd forgotten uh, until I saw it again. And, and I was surprised again by it. Mm -hmm. You don't realise that the Beth is actually sitting next to him and he passes the phone to Beth and she says, uh, this is Beth Gallagher. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you. Do you understand? So I think this is brilliant. Yeah, it, sorry. I think uh, this yeah. line got the biggest cheer. Yeah, uh, yeah. It got the biggest cheer in the previews when she said this line. Yeah. And and the, so the conclusion was amended accordingly, but again, not without close arguing about that line, yeah. as she thought again that it undermined her character. Yeah, yeah. Which again, you know, so again, you look at, watch the film, and you think, would I cheer at that bit where she says, "If you come near my family, I'll kill you." I'd be like, "Oh, poor bugger!" You know, her husband shagged somebody and got her pregnant, and I mm. I would go, "Yeah, yeah." But uh, remember, American audience, they're more, gung they're more gung ho than us reserved Brits, aren't they? Yeah, right. Yes. So, <clears throat> next scene is Beth living alone in the house with just Ellen. Dan has moved out. He's moved to the city. He's probably in a hotel near work. 
So she gets in a car. She's going to pick Ellen up from school. She drives to school. She goes to the door. The teacher meets her. And the teacher says, well, what are you doing here? Ellen left, you know, ages ago. Beth panics, runs into the school. Where's Ellen? Have you seen Ellen? Yeah, she's left ages ago. Then we see Alex. Now, Alex has got yet another very sexy black puffed close cl close puffed close <laughs> a puff i don't even know what that is a puffed up coat on leather again cinched waist again femme fatale oh my god she looks sexy but yep. she also looks facially ice cold stone she's set in stone Staring uh, off into the distance. So this is another fantastic scene, brilliantly executed. So by the time they cut between the roller coaster that um, Alex has taken Ellen on and uh, Beth crashing crashing into the car in front of her, the film has literally taken security completely off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. our heads are spinning. Yeah, yeah. Because the last thing you expect... Off a sane person is to kidnap the daughter of yeah. your lover. Yeah. So so here we're going, underlining again, Alex is bonkers, she's bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. <laughs> Let's not have any sympathy for her because she's got a black leather coat and looks hot. Yeah. But hey, she's bonkers. Yeah. So she kidnaps Ellen, but she's not cruel to Ellen. She buys her popcorn and candy floss and takes her on the rides. Yeah. And right at the very, very end, as she drops Ellen off at home, unharmed, she taps her cheek. Give me a little kiss, Ellen. A little kiss on the cheek. Is and Ellen, Ellen gives her a little sussy. That's Welsh for kiss. Oh. She gives her a little kiss on the cheek. Thank you very much, Auntie Alex. I had a lovely day. But back <laughs> in Gallagher world, Beth, who is so incredibly frantic looking for her daughter, because she knows that Alex has got her. She knows it crashes a car and is injured enough to be put in hospital yeah. so when we see her in hospital i think she's broken her arm she's got a black eye big cut on her forehead and she's she's really you know banged up then we see michael douglas running into the hospital hello hello was my wife was my wife he runs up to a nurse the nurse tells him where she is and there outside the door is little ellen sitting on Beth's mother's knee and the look that because we're not introduced to Beth's parents we, no. only, we only know that they go to the house a lot it's all in that look isn't it she looks at him like you absolute yeah can I say the c word go on you absolute cunt Dan Gallagher you unfaithful twatting cunt no need Sorry. for words it's all in the eyes it's all in the eyes all in the eyes. So poor Michael, what he realises at his wife's hospital bed, the enormity of what he's done. He, he For that one instant, he thinks, I am such a colossal shit. She kidnapped my kid. She's my wife's in the hospital. But but it's still it's becoming more anti Alex all the time. It's not like well, she's mentally ill. You know, this is like behaviour. She's been driven right. to this behaviour. It's like all it's the blame all seen, now. Yeah, it's all seen through Dan's eyes. Yes. So we, we, we are expected 
to jolly along with him on this terrible ride with this awful woman. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so yeah, all seen through Dan's eyes. That that that's that's a difficult that that's part of my problem with the film. But we'll get to that a bit later. So we're coming to the the last part of the film now, where yeah. everybody knows the truth. It's all out in the open. Dan wants to punish Alex. He wants to finally tell her to just leave him alone, leave the family alone. This is serious. He's in a rage. He slips into her building. And the angles in this bit of the of the, the scene as well are very off kilter. Like the doorways mm. aren't quite full on. You, you see snippets of things. The, the cutting is really fast as well between each particular yeah. piece as well. It's, it's all like awkward. It's an experimental movie. It turns quite experimental with yeah. line, you know, it just experimenting with different, you know, as you say, angles and shots. I think it's another brilliant, but another yeah. brilliant yeah. scene. He knocks on her door and as she opens it and sees his face, he kicks it down, sending her flying. And for the first time we see Alex in this very weird dress. That I, 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 I hoped that Adrian Lyne would say something about it in the commentary, and he doesn't. And I've looked as well and couldn't find anything online about this particular dress that she wears, which is a very long, um, is it a bardo shouldered? Because off the shoulder, isn't it? So she's got no bra on. It's mm. made of almost t-shirt material, so it's very, very close fitting. Her hair is loose, very shoulder. Isn't off it? the off the shoulder, like a bar, a, I think it's called a bardo cut, where it's off yeah. the shoulder permanently, yeah. and you can see her perfect breasts with her erect nipples all the mm. way through now, mm. and it's I the fact that it's a white dress as well. Obviously, he probably picked it because he thought blood would show up really well on it, but it mm. also is such a a feminine dress that I can't imagine alex buying a dress like that why has she got that virgin mary dress on right I now think, i think the film is so involved with colors like white being virtuous black being yeah you know, so i'm alex in a good mood now i'm yeah. alex in a bad mood now and i'm just yeah. gonna wear black i think it's just basically lines artistic it, it, you know, interpretation with that he uses black and white so mm -hmm. frequently in this film. As we see, you know, from, from the film's get-go, all the family are dressed in white. It's white T-shirts here. It's the wife dressed in, you know, her white underwear. And then, you know, when Alex feels like being a good girl, she'll wear white. Mm -hmm. She, you know, hi, come for a date. You know, da -da. But she's immediately dressed in black. When she goes off and does the kidnapping, and I think it's just purely an artistic choice, mm. with not necessarily the style of what she's wearing, but just going back to well, that I, white. I think it's the, it's you can see her breasts very clearly, considering <laughs> we've indeed. already seen them, you know, because she's yeah. topless in some, you know. Uh, but yeah, so he he breaks through the door. He sends her flying. They grapple with each other. She crawls away. He's chasing her. He finds her. He he mounts her. He strangles her. He's strangling her. She's dying. Her eyes are popping out of her head, mm -hmm. and he's really gonna kill her. 
and then he realizes what he's doing and releases her and mm. looks at his hands like what have i what am i doing i could kill her oh my god and he gets up and she goes into the kitchen she's hanging over the sink she's holding her throat she's trying to get her breath and guess what's on the side of the sink yes it's a massive yeah. knife the famous knife that was made out of wood yes yes the, the blade famous... was made out of wood and painted silver yes yeah the big knife she's stitched close says she has still hanging in her kitchen at home. oh really oh, i didn't know that that's amazing i know the knife they use near the end of the film was cardboard and they had problems with it because it got wet a bit bendy <laughs> yeah yeah not a good look not a good look Alex grabs the knife and rushes him uh, and she's completely like completely bonkers now screaming ah she runs towards him and he manages to dodge her they grapple a little bit more he takes the knife off her he puts it on the counter pay attention to that it's very important it is indeed she smiles she looks at the knife looks where it is he's put it down on the counter and that's the end of the scene we don't see him leave there's no dialogue between them the next thing we say yeah, well actually it's quite interesting as well adrian line at the end of that scene says at that point where she's put the knife on the counter and mm. michael douglas has also had hold of it they look at each other and she smiles at Michael Douglas. And Adrian Lyne says, can't you just imagine them having the fuck of the century right yeah, now? That, that they would just fall into each other's arms and be in love and have sex right there and then. And that and they would, you know, he would leave Beth and Ellen and be with Alex. And that's the look that she gives him. But of course, that doesn't happen. And of course, in the distance as well, you know, we look at the window in her apartment. It's raining again and Dan it's leaves. It's raining again. It's raining again and Dan leaves. So next we see Dan. He's gone back to the police. And he's with the NYPD. Um, he tells them what she's done, that he's, she's kidnapped Ellen. So they say they're going to pick her up and question him. Her, even. They're going to pick um, Alex up and question her. Mm -hmm. So we're back at the family home. And it's calm. Uh, Beth has come home from hospital. We don't know this just yet, though, because we see Dan putting Ellen to bed. He's tucking her up. They're back together. And, and she looks at him and she says, Daddy, will you stay with us forever? And Dan says, yes, I'll stay with you forever. And then we go back to the bathroom. And now we realise that Beth actually is out of hospital and she's running this is so funny as well she's running a bath now they're online if you go on youtube and you put in fatal attraction you'll get clips of the film you'll get interviews with the stars the director you'll get all sorts that you'll also get the piss takes which i think dave will probably put links to as well now there's one really really good one where Glenn Close is uh, in um, Saturday Night Live playing Alex at a help group, which is quite funny. The Glenn best Close one. Actually appeared on Saturday Night Live, did yeah, she? As Alex with a big leather coat on and a blonde oh, fright exactly. wig. Yeah. So there's that. That one's quite funny. 
there's there's quite a few different ones. Uh, not not with Glenn Close in. That's the only one with Glenn Close in. The best one though is um, it's not American Dad. Oh my God, what's his name? Stewie is in it. Family oh, guy. Family Guy. Yeah. So so Lois is Alex in it, <laughs> and and what's the dad's name? Oh, this is terrible. Everybody's shouting at me what his name is now. What's your name? Uh, my, my name? Uh, 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 P. Uh, 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 Tear. Uh, uh, Griffin. Yeah, yeah, Peter Griffin. Oh, crap. So the dad out of Family Guy, he's Michael Douglas's character. Oh, I could laugh. It's one of the, it's the definitely the funniest piss take. And the best bit is, <laughs> so she, she plays Beth and um, Lois plays Beth in this as well. Right. She's in the bathroom, filling the bath up and there's about 400 pipes and it looks like it as well. She's turning the, turning the tap on and the bath is never filling up and there's pipes everywhere and steam and mirrors and there's loads of, and she's just filling the bath up and dabbing cream on herself and filling the bath up. And then, the, you know, it's really, really misty, really, really misty. And she shouts, shouts, Dan, make us a cup of tea. And he goes, all right, darling. And he goes, leaves the bathroom, you know, because he's happy now because they're all together and it's all over. So oh, she's God. fiddling with the bath again. But, and there's more and more steam. And she decides to wipe the window with her, with her dressing gown. And there, staring at her, is... Alex in the reflection. So this has got to be the most waterlogged image of the film. Mm. <laughs> this is Beth's, you know, final scene in her all-white bathroom as she prepares to take this bath. So, you know, as we've seen in Hitchcock, Hitchcock's Psycho, there's multiple close-up <laughs> shots here of running water, as well as the sight of a near-naked woman left all alone in the bathroom, just underscoring her vulnerability. In this steam-filled room, Beth handles a, a glass jar, doesn't she? And yeah. wipes away steam from the bathroom mirror. So we've seen this bit. And so this is brilliant because this is the fight. Well, well, it's 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 we argue about it during these final scenes. The suspense crests perfectly into a full blown slasher conclusion, and the perseverance of water motif, you know, finally comes to a head. So as you've said, we see close up shots of water as Dan runs for the tap for Beth's tea, but because Beth is being terrorised in the bathroom, she doesn't turn off the tap and the bathtub overflows to the point that water, like rain, drips through the ceiling to the first floor. And it's only when Dan removes the whistling teapot, which has been drowning out Beth's screams, does she realise what's been happening upstairs. It's a terrifying scene. It is, isn't it? It is. It's the, the ten tension in this is palpable and you do feel like oh my god oh my god because he's just eating fruit loops isn't he he's like it's yeah. the kids fruit loops yeah yeah, yeah born in the kettles so you can't hear her screaming because the kettle's making a noise and he's eating fruit loops and and then he's looking he actually sees the water dripping and doesn't doesn't do anything he doesn't no. go upstairs to say oi turn that tap off no he just Typical man. The dog actually notices it before he does. <laughs> the dog's going, oi. Oi. 
Take me for a walk. Dead to the world. Michael um, Douglas, again. When you just, think about I'm it. I'm just making a cup of tea. <laughs> that dog had a lucky escape, really, because you think she would have killed the dog. But then she's not Norwegian, so. Yeah, it wouldn't have gone down well with the American audience as one teeny it tiny wouldn't, bit. No. So Alex is in, in the bathroom with Beth and she's got a that big knife in her hand. The one mm. from the counter with all the prints on it. That's right. And she looks at Beth and says, well, what are you doing here? Why are you in here? And gives sort of this little speech to Beth about how she's met him and they're attracted to each other. And don't you think I know what you're doing? You've moved him to the country and and he loves me, doesn't love you. You're keeping him away from me and you're just selfish. You're stupid and you're a selfish bitch. But as she's no. saying this... In the original script, she was supposed to be jabbing at Beth with the knife. But mm. instead of doing that, she jabs at herself and ends up, she can't feel what she's doing. And this is kind of horrible as well. She's stabbing herself in the leg, cutting her yeah. leg, but yeah. can't can't feel any of it. Uh, and Adrian Lyne included that to try to not make Glenn close a one note of villainess. I think yeah. he already succeeded in that, though, really, didn't he? Dan I finally think... hears the screams. Yeah. He runs into the bathroom, grapples with Alex, throws her in the bath, lands on top of her, and starts to strangle her. So essentially, mm -hmm. he drowns her, and her mm -hmm. eyes turn white. And again, I'll just mention again that the the knife was made of cardboard and got so soggy it just collapsed in the water so they had to have a few. I have to say poor old Glenn I mean during the reshoot of this uh, ending she suffered a concussion yeah. during one takes when her uh, when her head uh, smashed against a mirror uh, after being rushed to the hospital she discovered much to her horror that she was actually a few weeks pregnant with her mm. daughter she was yeah. pregnant for real yeah. um, she also developed eye and ear infections from being dunked repeatedly in that bathtub for hours so and then, to this day close said watching the ending makes her uncomfortable because of how much she unknowingly put her unborn daughter at risk from the physically demanding shoot and mm. can you imagine yeah. the retakes the retakes the yeah. retakes yeah. no fun no fun but yeah. oh boy does she make it work oh well, yeah she does she does uh but but we do have a bit of a carry ending as well where we think she's dead because her eyes turn white, which is a bit weird. Really? Uh, or her the whole of her eye is just white. And uh, Glenn Close had a huge problem being in that bath because she couldn't keep her eyes open. And she's such a consummate professional that she just practised and practised and practised until she could keep her eyes open. And if you watch the film, you'll see her eyes are wide open looking just slightly away from the camera as yeah. he's strangling her. And then she's dead, but yeah. her eyes turn white. Mm. But then the carry ending where she leaps up and takes a big <gasps> breath, goes for Michael, but yeah, Beth gets there. <coughs> oh, sorry. Beth Excuse gets there you. with her gun. The gun that Michael looked at earlier on in the film, just so the audience know that Michael Douglas has got a gun hidden away. And she shoots her right in the heart. Instant mm -hmm. death. 
It's a strange one, that that ending, yeah, that so-called, I mean, this was the ending that, you know, test audiences made clear that they, this was the happy ending they wanted. Yeah. Um, I mean, turning Alex from a wronged woman to a slash happy would-be killer in the Friday the 13th mould, you know, I think is, you know, is at best silly, at worst, kind of misogynistic. I mean, there aren't many films in which the viewer is invited to applaud a pregnant woman getting a bullet to the heart, yeah. is there? Yeah. Um, so that wasn't how it was meant to end for poor Alex, but that crazy career woman had to be gummed down. Yeah. Yuck. Well, the ending right. is very short then. After, as soon as she's dead, the camera drifts down the stairs and focuses on a picture that we've seen before of the yeah. Gallaghers looking really happy, mum, yeah. dad, kid. The end. Yeah. Normality is, you know, it's restored. Nothing's out of place. Oh, yeah, you got somebody dead and pregnant in the bath, but you know, she deserved it, didn't she? See, that uh, was the, that's the scary thing because we we know, like we've said before, that 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 uh, Beth and Dan were, were wide awake, aware that she was pregnant, but yeah. the pregnancy never mentioned again. No. It's, no, just, it's not. It's just have to have that heterosexual happy family ending, Hollywood yeah. style. Yeah. Well, the director. Now, I've read several versions of this, and this actually comes from Adrian Lyne's commentary on the disc. Yeah. About the alternate ending of which I've just described. That isn't the real ending of Fatal Attraction. Mm-hmm. And Adrian Lyne said, um, there are different versions of this. People have said, you know, test audiences didn't like it. They demanded something different, you know, whatever. Adrian Lyne said he went to see it with the producer, yeah. with a test audience, and he himself didn't like the ending and he thought it felt wrong and it needed more oomph. And they mm. came up with with this this. Alex getting shot, Alex attack, attacking Beth, Alex breaking into the house, ending. Yeah. So this was filmed six months after the completion of the film. And as soon as the film was released, it this was the right ending for the film at that time because it just became a phenomenal success. Absolutely. Um, so... Let's just explain the original ending uh, before we carry on. So I'll just explain the original ending. Uh, this is also available online on YouTube and also as an extra on most of the Fatal Attraction discs you can buy. Uh, so what happens is after Dan goes to see Alex for the last time, when he breaks down her door, tries to strangle her, realises what he's done, backs off. She comes at him with a knife. Um, they fight. He takes the knife off her. He leaves it on the counter. The end of that scene. Then we see the family, the Gallagher family, in the back garden of their new house. It looks like Beth has just come out of hospital. She's got a bandaged arm and a black eye and the little girl is running around playing. Some police cars arrive. Uh, And this is definitely after the incident with Alex has happened. So the the police cars arrive. They want to question Dan about Alex. And he says, do you know Alex? He goes, yeah, why? 
she's dead. And as they continue to question him, <clears throat> Beth smiles uh, and says, well, she's dead. She was crazy. Beth says that. She was crazy and smiles. And then the police say, well, you know, she may have been like, but it's unusual for a woman to cut her own throat with a nine inch kitchen knife. And that mm -hmm. knife was covered in your prints, Dan. Mm -hmm. So Dan is arrested uh, for murdering Alex. Beth goes, the police take him away and Beth goes into Dan's room, which is uh, like a, American men have dens, don't they? In Britain, we don't, men don't have things like that. They have sheds. <laughs> Beth goes, goes into Dan's room to phone a lawyer to help him. And while she's there, she's sort of fiddling about and she notices the tape recorder and presses play. Uh, this is instantly after they've taken Dan away. And Alex's voice comes out of the tape recorder and she's giving like saying that he's a faggot and that she hates him. And she says, if you don't come back to me, I don't know what I'll do. I'll cut deeper or kill myself. And Beth cries. Oh, thank God. And laughs. Ha, ha, ha. And then we hear Madam Butterfly play. Because obviously Beth has got the proof that Dan didn't kill her that she threatened suicide would that get him off they got the prince on the knife oh yeah of course he will get off because he's white and american yeah <laughs> he'd be stuffed if he was a black man wouldn't he <laughs> yeah they've apparently kept they have kept that same ending in for the japanese audience apparently yeah that that specific ending in i haven't seen the original that that ending um because i haven't got the extra on the dvd but i i'm sure i can find it somewhere well the very end of the film we see alex on her knees in her apartment with the the main uh, song from madame butterfly playing the bit where Cho, the right at the end when chocho san slashes her throat and we see Alex hold the knife up and it is a great big knife. And she very slowly runs it across her throat. So we see her committing suicide in a very operatic style. I, it, it's actually beautiful. Because she literally... Darker, yeah, so much darker, yeah. so much more interesting had it ended on that. Moment. Yeah. And that was it. That was the end. Um, hmm. Orders restored. So in the 2002 special edition... Close comments that she had massive doubts about reshooting the film. She's been on the record for saying this forever. She wasn't into reshooting it. She thought it should have been left as it was because uh, she really believed that her character's pathway was self-destruction and an ultimate suicide. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, she was under contract. She didn't have much of a choice. She had to go and reshoot that ending. Uh, so she filmed a new sequence <clears throat> and she really fought against having to do it as well. Uh, she described that she was very protective of her character. She never thought of Alex as a villain. Villain, She said, I wasn't playing a generality. I wasn't playing a cliche. I was playing a very specific, deeply disturbed, fragile human being who I'd grown to love. However... The ending made Alex into a psychopath against Close's wishes. She also mm -hmm. acknowledged that the film wouldn't have experienced the enormous success it did without this new ending because it gave the audience a sense of catharsis and hope that somehow the family unit 
would survive the nightmare. Yes, so it, therefore it was easier to paint Alex as the villain rather than the wronged woman, yeah. a construct that sat uneasily with the idealised vision of family. Yeah. So there you go. And she took one for the team, as they said. She certainly did, yeah. She, she took one for the team and just went, okay, then, fine, we'll, we'll do it. But she had a lot of uh, control throughout that film. Mm. She, she definitely injected a lot of ideas. Um and made her issues uh, clear. And I think she's portrayed that very well throughout the film. Well, very, very just, recently, she she suggested, I, I, and it, I think it was in like the last two years, suggested that wouldn't it have been great if there had been another Fatal Attraction film from Alex's point of view? Yeah. Would have I'd been, love to see something like that. Yeah, wouldn't that, yeah, wouldn't most women like to see? It would Absolutely. be very interesting, wouldn't it? From Alex's perspective, because this is a film from the man's perspective. Yeah. Well, it's from almost like, um, it's almost like the White Sargasso Sea, isn't it? From, you know, that, that that's the woman's perspective yeah. of Jane Eyre, of the, of the wronged wife in Jane Eyre. Which is, you know, I don't think I don't know if there's ever been a film made of that, but um, yeah, it would be hugely different. So, so I know that you probably got a lot of closing thoughts. My mine are that the film still stands up. I I really enjoyed watching it again. I think have it made me feel. I laughed a bit, you know, like a not a ha 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 laugh, more of an exasperated oh god laugh at some of the stuff that happened in it um because even watching it now even though it's such an old film there's still that undercurrent of her mental illness that isn't mm. hidden that it's like hang on there's something more going on here but the audience at the time just want bade for blood and that's what they got with that with that new ending yeah um I think I do think it's a cut above other sort of th sex thrillers of its ilk, like mm -hmm. Basic Instinct. It it is always bandied together with Fatal Attraction, uh, not just because of Michael Douglas, but because of when it when they were both made as you know and so not really similar but sort of similar stabbiness in it. Yeah, Fatal Attraction is um. I still think it's relevant now, but for different reasons. Absolutely. In so much as young women studying film or young women watching film will probably watch it now and go, hang on a minute, this is not right. And what happened to that baby? Now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what what about that baby? And what about her mental illness, which she obviously, exactly. you know. But I know that um if you if you talk to a man about fatal attraction, they will go, oh yeah, fatal attraction. That's what could happen, and it was almost like a morality tale for men. If you if you fool around or have sex, just be careful who you pick to shag because she absolutely could, she could I stalk you afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've just got a few closing thoughts and some questions really to put to our audience. 
I mean, personally, I think, you know, watching the film almost, you know, 35 years later, definitely questions, you know, questions about attitudes to sex and women sort of rise, forcing considerations about what hasn't, you know, hasn't changed. I think generally, generally there's a greater sympathy for Alex, but it's, but like we've discussed throughout this conversation, it's much more difficult to buy Douglas's every man performance, you know, and give credibility to his innocence. Um, Dan knew what he was doing. Yeah. He knew what he was doing yeah. and endangering when he slept with Alex. Mm. Uh, but I still think even today, fatal attraction still, you know, expresses our Puritan queasiness about sexual desire much better than, you know, the swarm of stalker ripoffs that it spawned, as well as our insistence on blaming the hall for any threat to marital fidelity. Yeah. So, uh I just think on you know as a closing fall on this on one surface level, Alex and Beth, the Alexes and Beths of the world are divided up to indicate that there are women, you know, women you fuck and women you marry. Yeah. Um but Which one are you? That, there, is, there is some women, like you know, the, the Alexes have too much love to give, perhaps, you know, which can quickly turn to hate if wasted upon the wrong person. So um, what else was I going to say? How I wanted the film to change, but uh, for example, to hear a deeper conversation perhaps between Douglas and Archer in which truth was told and the strength of their marriage was tested more perhaps. I wanted to see more of the inner workings of Alex's mind like we've discussed before. I wanted to know more about how Dan really felt about the situation. You know, although he really grows to hate Alex, is he really completely indifferent to the knowledge that she's pregnant with his child yeah. that isn't discussed yeah. enough um they so get rid of all that don't they they just sort of push all push all that to one side all the feelings all the in-depth stuff just to crack on with the story so maybe if i mean this i mean it was made 34 years ago it was before tv is what it is today, you know, with Netflix series. So maybe it could be that somebody like Netflix could make Fatal Attraction right now, make it a six-hour, six-part series and cover yeah. all that. And that would be amazing, wouldn't I'd watch it? it? Especially if HBO if it, would do it. So I, would, I would see yeah. HBO doing a remake. If it was set in the 80s... But we also got a bit of insight for Alex as well. Make make it a bit more balanced. It, yeah. I think it would be a massive hit, and people would really watch it. So we need yeah. to we need to write it really and sell it to. Uh... And going back to my question, which one are you as well? Are you the are you the whore or are you the woman that they'd marry? What would you rather? I'm do? neither. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I in between. I... I feel nothing. Nothing. Feel nothing. No. <laughs> I yeah. just want to go just briefly about just as another closing thought. I don't. It is a fatal, com, a fatal contraption. It's going to say that's my all fault. your fault. <laughs> loads to me. Um, I'm just going to say so. Alex's demands that Dan face up to the consequences of his actions aren't unreasonable, are they? I mean, they're rational and uh, they're rational, understandable expectations. No. Um, oh, I, do, I think it's totally unreasonable. I mean, she's a woman. She's chosen to have sex with him. She should be yeah. on the pill and have yeah. a cap up there. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, 
I, I think the problem is it's, it's Dan's inability to manage her expectations that escalate the problem and set in motion this desperate chain of events in which Alex becomes increasingly psychotic. Um, also, I think, you know, aside all that aside, I think Adrian Lyne seems to be mining, mining a number of different subtexts, including fear of women, fear of the city, and as we've discussed before, a fear of telephones. Um, This was, um, oh, where was I going to say? And a love Um, of water. Yes, and another undercurrent is probably fear of AIDS. Uh, This was the 80s, while the disease is never mentioned. The film is, after all, about the horror of a casual sexual encounter that produces a lingering fatal aftermath. And it's with this complexity that fatal attraction reaches the dizzying heights that it does. Oh, you're so clever, Amy. <laughs> I never even thought about AIDS. <laughs> so there! Multi-led, multi-led, almost brilliant film. Almost brilliant. And there we have Fatal Attraction. Yay! Woo! Woo! So, dear audience, have we got a treat for you, fuckers! Yes. As we record today, we have already planned our next show, which will be our Christmas show. And there is only one Christmas film that TNA want to talk about for 2021. And what film is that, Amy? That would be the majestical Die Hard. Yay! We love Die Hard. And yes, Die Hard is a Christmas film. It is the Christmas film. So So, looking forward with this one, Tina. So looking forward. So hopefully we will see you before Christmas with Die Hard. But uh, just before we go, I'll do a bit of... um, Oh my God, if only you could see what Amy's doing right now. Are you a bit sweaty, darling? Oh, the menopause, the joy. Yeah, I'm a bit sweaty as well. Yeah, I and I, I need to do a wee as well, because we've been. Do you know how long we've been sitting here? Uh, do you know how long this podcast is going to be? It's going to be two three, and a half hours. Two three, hours. Three hours, darling. Aren't we clever girls? Oh, we're the best. So Aren't we clever girls. You can follow us on sixty MW. See, I didn't see sixty minutes with. Are you pleased with me, Dave? Do I get a lollipop? We're on Twitter. We're not on Facebook because it's shit. Uh, and we're also on Instagram. Uh, please check out the website where there are, even though there's been a small hiatus because Dave has, has been in hospital having an operation and he's in the middle of his recovery now. So things have been a little bit slow over the last couple of months. Things are starting to be put back on the website. We're going to be releasing more podcasts, especially the amazing die hard what amy and i will be doing and we're the best uh (laughs) so so i think over the christmas period dave is planning normally he has a holiday at christmas and closes down the website sort of when he 
leaves work. So around about, you know, the weekend that our podcast comes out, he'll probably shut down the, the website for a couple of weeks. And then we'll be back with all new content, all new reviews, all new podcasts. And aren't we amazing? <laughs> oh, and I have to mention all the competitions on Twitter as well. So we're on at 60MW on Twitter. Hello. If you do want to follow us on Twitter, and hopefully you already are, it's at 60MW Podcast. Tina has uh, had to accept a 50% pay cut because of that. Back to the ladies. Please give us a like and a follow and enter all our competitions. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know that you really, really hated it. We don't mind you telling us we're shit or that you really, really loved it. And that would be better. It's important for us to hear, definitely. We like feedback. If you want to talk about the film, we would love to hear from you. Any mm. feedback at all. Amy, would you like to tell the audience what your Twitter handle is? I've forgotten. <laughs> Amy Simmons, at Amy Simmons, one, two, three, four. So give Amy a follow and I'm usual, you know, you all know mine. You don't have to follow me, though, because I hardly ever write on Twitter. <laughs> It's at Spanky Spangler. Uh, yeah, but follow at 60MW because of all the amazing competitions. I've said competitions about 400 times now, but it's really important. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, don't forget to look out for Die Hard in the next mm, three weeks or so. It should be if we're coming Ooh. out before Christmas. So we haven't got long. Oh, my God. That means I'll have to watch him. In it. Oh, I love Bruce Willis in that vest. Oh, and Alexander good enough, but it's Alan Rickman all the way for me. Oh, oh Alan Severus. Oh, he got he's... paid peanuts for that part, you know. Oh. Anyway, just yes, yes, save it for he next paid time. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so it's uh, a, a fond farewell from me, and thank you for sticking with us through it all because it's quite a long one, but it's ve it's good stuff, and it it's sure a goodbye is, from. Would you like to say goodbye, Amy? Bye-bye, lovely audience. And yeah, it'd be really nice to hear back from you. And uh, so looking forward to the next time. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.